The Cultists present Cinema of Cruelty. And this week on the Cinema of Cruelty, we ask the question, have you ever really looked into the face of a snowman? Stared into his ashen eyes and his crooked coffee bean smile, the wide open beckon of his twiggish limbs, and known beyond any shadow of a doubt that you were about to die? Can such harbingers of imminent doom with their sinister snowy souls carry the entire weight of a bleak Nordic noir as our titular serial killer's chilling calling card? Let's find out. Because today we are melting down Thomas Alfredson's 2017 film, The Snowman. From production and shooting nightmares, to the hallucinatory terrain of editing choices, to the leftover baffled confusion of its audiences, this movie might just be as heartless and empty as a snowman's hollow icy core. So sit back and relax as we take you through what's bound to be a toasty, warm, and chipperly cheerful ride. Brought to you by the possibly foreseeable fallout of tongue cancer, the Nordic paradox of domestic abuse, Michael Fassbender's Harry Hole, and the Snowman of Doom. And of course, today our safe word is sunlight. Anything to add, Benji? Oh, sorry. I was uh, I was actually just playing the soundtrack to this uh, film. Let me go ahead and uh, get one of the tracks going for you. Uh, yeah, here we go. <laughs> Traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of space! <laughs> Boy! Sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. <laughs> I see you shiver with anticipation. Oh my god! Disappointed! Jesus. Where? Oh, hi, Mark. <sighs> Hello, London. Hi, Benji. Yeah, that's not my name. It is. It is. Y- you know, enough palaver. Fuck this movie, London. Fuck this movie. Good God. You could try <sighs> if you want to. There's plenty of holes. Oh, my God. There are many hairy holes in this movie. Oh, boy. London, how did we first find out about this film? Okay, so I actually first heard about this film through its trailer, and the trailer, I still maintain, is awesome. Yeah, I rewatched it myself earlier today, and one, I thought, yeah, this trailer's pretty badass. The song of the trailer, I thought, was uh, really cool. It doesn't show up anywhere in the movie, uh, much like scenes that are in the trailer don't show up in the movie. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the movie just doesn't show up in the movie, and so we'll uh, we'll talk about that. But the trailer looked great. It looked like it was going to be a fun, sort of strange, whimsical serial killer set in a Nordic noir landscape. Sure. So I was I was primed for it. So when it came out in theaters, I went and saw it. I believe we both saw this movie in theaters. Did we see it together in theaters? I feel like we did. Pretty sure we saw this movie together in theaters, because I also saw that trailer and thought it was cool, but I think by that point, I'd also seen some reviews that said it was kind of weird uh, that Val Kilmer was in it, and that he should not have been in it, which I was odd to me. I wasn't too sure what that what that was all about. But I think when we saw this, like it's, I checked the Rotten Tomato score, and it was like 17%, 15%, which is 
absurdly low for a major film like this. So it was like kind of curiosity that got me there. And yeah, I remember just being utterly baffled by this movie uh, when we saw it live. I think you're not alone in that. And so we'll talk a little bit throughout this podcast today as to why it's so utterly baffling. And there's... Some answers given, but not all of them. Not enough of them. Yeah, yeah. I think the more this is like the more you dive into the the quote unquote answers uh, about this movie, the more questions you have. This is very true. So, what, despite all this, um, is the actually we'll say what is the worst thing about this movie first? Ooh, that's uh, oh boy, that's high in the list. Um, I would say for me personally, having been on the journey I've been on, are the baffling changes and omissions from its literary source. Excellent. You're going to talk more about that later since I initially, when I texted you in terms of we were trying to figure out who's going to do what to prep for this. And I'm like, should I take the literary comparison, get this text back of you reading the book? In media race of reading the books, I'm like, all right, never mind. You take point on that one. So you have yeah. read this entire novel just recently, right? Read, yes, I have. So there we go. So yeah, you'll uh, you'll take point on that for us. Mm-hmm. What is the best thing about this movie? Oh, oh, you gotta make me choose something. We'll do. Like normally, I would say Chloe Savini is the best thing about this film because she's often the best thing about any film that she's in. Yeah, she's but. Not. She's completely wasted in this movie. Um, I'll say that the best thing about this movie, I think, is uh, Michael Fassbender, which might be odd, but he is very well cast in this movie, I think. And if it were a properly made film, uh, it would be a really good performance from him. Having read the book, I'll say that he's great casting. He absolutely is the character described in the novel. Right. Yeah, I think. The worst thing about this movie is indeed its wasted potential Mm -hmm. because it did look like it had such promise. As I understand from the source material, the source material is very popular and had some stuff to work with and it just didn't come about. The best thing about this movie has to be those goddamn snowmen. (laughs) They're so cute and weird. And every time the camera decides to lovingly and yet sinisterly dwell on one of the snowmen it comes with the best sort of musical arrangements and like the slow pans and everything about the snowman in this movie is just every choice. time we and see I a snowman in this them. movie you might as well hear like a i mean we kind of do we basically so. do like that the soundtrack gives you a dramatic chord and it yeah it just might as well be dun 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 that's like how obvious it is uh, like, I was thinking about this. There are so many scenes in this movie and elements of this film that look like they're from a Key and Pell sketch, like, lampooning this kind of movie. It was so bizarre to me. Indeed. And, yeah, everything about the snowmen in those moments is letting you know these little snowmen right here, yeah, they are here to fuck shit up. <laughs> And that those parts work for me. So, oh, all right. So let's get into it. Uh, let's get into the snowman. 
So first, for people who are not familiar with the movie itself, just as a really quick summary, we're going to get our main character, whose name is Harry Hole. So we're just going to throw that out there very quickly. And he is our disgruntled alcoholic cop. Mm -hmm. And a serial killer is going to start sort of wrecking havoc in Oslo and occasionally sending little notes Mm -hmm. claiming that he is the snowman killer. And unfortunately, nothing really happens with these notes. There's a lot of stuff that's just not really going to go anywhere thread-wise. And we'll also talk about why that (laughs) is. Um, But really, there's a serial killer who calls himself the snowman and there's a series of bodies and harry hole is going to be mostly our narrator pov perspective through this as he does absolutely nothing to try to solve the case he just kind of is physically present while events unfold and eventually the killer is going to reveal himself to oh god and that is the plot of this movie Mm -hmm. in kind of a nutshell yeah um so now we're gonna break down okay let's a little bit more of the plot First thing I noticed, we opened up, there's a production company called Perfect World Pictures, and uh, having watched this thing two times over now, I'm like, yeah, bullshit, no. The next production company was Working Title Pictures, I'm like, okay, yeah, that I buy. There's a lot of working title about this movie. Uh, And then we go into, we have this wonderful, like this movie, right from the start, it does take advantage of the geography of Norway. This was one of the, I it's one of the few Hollywood films that's been shot like natively in Norway and you get some great vistas and we go across lovely mountains, snow covered hills uh, and treetops to a, a lake and a house and a snowmobile is pulling up to the lake in the house and there's a kid in there and the kid says, Hey mom, it's uncle Jonas. And his mother is like just seemingly dead alive in bed. Like, what? No, it's not Tuesday. He can't be here. And uh, a guy that we presume to be Uncle Jonas comes in. And so Tuesday or not, here's Uncle Jonas. That's uh, that's what it is. Uh, he goes upstairs and uh, him and him and mom, Uncle Jonas and mom, they they bang. Uh, that happens. The kids wandering around. He's like, huh, I wonder what they're doing. Peeks in, sees them. I guess post-coitus, they got their clothes back on really fast. There's going to be a lot of clothed fucking in this yeah, throughout. I know, and like, there are times when you're like, were they really fucking? Or was that just like middle school, like, grade dry humping? Your jeans feel so good against my jeans. <laughs> that. Yes, that. Uh, so... <laughs> The kid peeks in through a window, sees his mom and and Uncle Jonas, we'll call him, uh, just kind of laying there in bed. Mom's distraught. She says, uh, I'm going to tell your wife that he's really your son. And then your whole family will know. And he says, well, then you'll never see me again or something like that. So hold on. I think this is one of the films that we're going to have to give a couple of production things away before we talk about it, or else we're going to be revisiting a lot of these scenes again later, and nobody wants to listen to this twice. Um, So one thing that's going to be very important is that while they were filming this, or when they got into post-production, according to the director, he kind of realized, or they all realized, that only about 90 percent of the film had been shot or the script so about 10 to 15 percent of the script was left unshot so they just did not have the footage for this film i wish i had known that going into this movie like when we saw it in theaters because i was just 
I, I'm like, I was left numb by the end. Just like, what even was that? Watching it now, I think to myself, oh, yeah, I, I think, you know, 10% more footage in this opening whole sequence would explain a lot. Because this guy says, oh, you'll never see me again. We then have a scene where he is asking the kid questions about his homework. Like, when did the king get back from World War II? And the, the kid says, oh, I this date. Okay, cool. When did Parliament first hold its elections? Oh, gee, I don't know. And he just, Uncle Jonas smacks Mom, who is counting coffee beans for reasons. I don't know. Just it's a pastime. It's yeah, as you do. Smacks her across the face. So when this guy says, uh, you're never going to see me again, I would think, uh, that sounds like a good thing for this family because he just abuses them and apparently, you know, gives, uh, just dry humps the mom with his clothes on. I don't know why they actually want him here. I assume some extra footage would explain maybe he brings them food or money every now and then, like he is their means of support, but we get zero explanation. So we don't know what he is well, doing. That's part of the thing too. And so this is one of the scenes that there are two scenes that I really kind of had a lot to say on. Mm. Um, and this is one of them because it does set up the film and it sets up a lot of expectations or a lack of expectations. Yes. And we can really see the fingerprints here of the editor trying to composite some semblance of a setup narrative. So yeah, we do start out before they even go upstairs to fuck with this kind of Q and A mm -hmm. quiz bowl over coffee beans. Um, we set up that there's a lot of domestic abuse and violence happening mm -hmm. in this relationship um, and that the kid kind of witnesses it or feels pressured to sort of perform so that his mother doesn't get hit. And then when we're upstairs, we get a lot of ADR, and we're going to get a ton of ADR oh, throughout yeah. this entire film. Oh, ADR, my old friend. And so it's really important to also kind of mention that the dialogue that happens after he rolls off of her and the mother sort of says, I'm going to tell your wife that he's your son, and then everybody's going to know, is distinctively ADR mm -hmm. in. So this was not the original conversation that took place yeah. during the filming of the scene. And then the kid runs away from the window. The now baby daddy gets upset and says, well, then you're never going to see me again. Yeah. Storms out while this kid is building a snowman with his little coffee beans as sort of the mouth. <laughs> Aha, the coffee beans mattered. Yeah. Gets in the car to drive away. The mother goes running after him. And as they're skidding out onto the ice, we all of a sudden have her deciding to stop the car. And then the ice cracks. Well, the car starts to sink. The boy gets out and she just plain faced depression. Yeah. Lets herself sink into the ice. And this is going to be the opening. But yeah, now we get back to the OK, we can kind of see that they're compositing different scenes together that did not initially intend to sort of follow in sequence. Yes. Yeah. And we get this question of, okay, so if this guy is his son, or if the boy is this, you know, Uncle Joe's or whatever son, and she's she has a plan, right? She has a plan in place. She's going to reveal to his family that this kid is his. I mean, she's got some power here. There's no need to go chasing after him, yeah. right? So that motive is already a little hazy. And then if she's already chasing after him and she seems very motivated to do so, to then all of a sudden give up mid-chase and just let herself drown. 
also doesn't make any sense. No. So we already have within these first sort of three minutes a really confusing premise setup of character motivation. And that's going to set the tone for the film. Yeah, is confusing character motivation a problem for you, audience? Well, buckle up, because we got a lot more movie to get through. Uh, yeah, and not only... Uh, so, car sinks in, we get some opening credits, we then fade up to a snoring Michael Fassbender dropping an empty bottle of vodka, and he is waking up outdoors in a children's playground, drunk off his ass. I presumably had been drinking the night before, happily. I do have to say that this is one of my favorite character intros, though. So this was kind of a gem of a moment mm -hmm. throughout the film where you have your character introduced first by just a close-up insert shot of his hand clutching a bottle of vodka, yeah. and it drops and it wakes him up on yeah. a park bench. If you're, so trying to, was... like, if you're introducing a character that's alcoholic, like, yeah, that's pretty, that's efficiency of storytelling right there. Oh, okay, yeah, alcoholic. So, Michael Fassbender, who, okay, when we were first, when I saw this in theaters, I just, I don't know what, the, what his name is. Uh, I just think to myself, okay, so Michael Fassbender just woke up. Okay, he's walking, and he kind of walks home, walks up to his apartments. He, he sees some, like, smoke or gas coming out of his apartment door. Oh, that's weird. So he goes and finds a hidden gun, which I didn't catch us until the second time through, and it made me groan so much. His gun is hidden in his records. You may know where I'm going with this. I do. Next to a Sex Pistols album. Yeah. The pistol is by the Sex Pistols. Oh, oh, well played, movie. Well played. Maybe that's you just some me. derivative detective, alcoholic detective stuff. Where No, it's just cheap writing. <laughs> Where's my pistol? Oh, yeah, next to the Sex Pistols. I don't want to forget where I hid my gun. I better put it next to a bad pun. There we go. What's even better is he's going to grab this gun and he's going to turn around and just shoot it at this person who is clearly Which... in a hazmat suit spraying his apartment and he's going to yeah. miss. He's going to miss by a lot. And it looks like he shot it by accident. Yeah, so this guy's... This is already when you kind of know if you've seen the trailers or you know the book and you're like maybe the alcoholic cop that falls asleep in parks and sort of randomly misfires at civilians is not the ideal choice as lead detective in the decade-defining serial murder investigation in sort Which, of Norway's history, right? But if you know the book, <laughs> it doesn't work. It doesn't help. I'll get into why, but it doesn't. So, anyway. all right, really? Okay, this guy is, he's not super competent. And no. we meet the mold guy or... The really hot mold guy. Yes. <laughs> it's like someone like a tattooed H&M model took up mold mold prevention. <laughs> this guy and is CW hot. Like, what are you doing? Why aren't you modeling, man? <laughs> Go. He's, he's really attractive and he's not in this movie enough. No. In some ways, he's not in it enough. In some ways, he's in it too much because we really probably didn't need this character at all. When he walks up to to our main character who is at this point unnamed but we do hear this fumigation guy say like through his mask oh hurry hole and when i first saw this in theaters i didn't realize that was the guy's, the name. Na the guy's name i just thought why that's an odd 
That's an odd thing to say. Why are you suddenly making a reference to a hairy anus? Like, that's kind of bizarre. And this is the beginning of a very niche type of porn where we have the setup of, like, home invasion mold guy is in your apartment and he turns around. It's like, hairy hole. And he's like, yeah, I've already got my gun out. Let's yeah. do this. So... He, Stuff is uh, happening. And the mold guy has a puppy, an adorable little sort of oh, black lab puppy that he brings with him during this mold spraying endeavor, which, which might not be the best thing yeah, for the puppy. Why are you trying to hurt the puppy, dude? That's 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 bad news. To bring the puppy along, you have a gas mask on. Clearly, this is not a safe environment. Why do you have a small animal with maybe not fully developed immune system like in this horrible environment? Whatever. Anyway, also wait. Question though. So yeah. when he first walks in and he sees the puppy first, yeah, and the puppy seems to be by a puddle of something. Yeah. So is that a puddle of a of a snowman, or like what are we supposed to take away from this puddle? I don't think even the makers of this film knew the answer well, to that question. I could imagine it being spilt water, spilt vodka. Uh, our main character is clearly a fan of vodka, so uh, he just he just spilled some vodka all over the place. That Who should knows? evaporate before the next morning, though. So it does seem maybe my suspicion is that when this was filmed with the original script, that this came at a time in which perhaps there was already a set up rapport, cat and mouse rapport with the snowman killer and the cop, and that the killer had been in his house and sort of set up a little bit of a snowman or something and it melted and yet it no longer fit within the re-edited movie and for some reason we still have this puppy uh, sitting next to a slush puddle i'm not sure possible it's nothing from the there's nothing in the book like that so couldn't tell you uh hot super hot fumigation guy just tells him like yeah you got black mold in this place man which if you've ever lived in an apartment that's like has any degree of mold happening, like that is terrifying to hear. Black mold don't fuck around. The the guy posits the mold theory where he just is sort of really emphatically worried for Harry Hole because he's pointing out all of the places yeah. the mold is in the house. And he's like, and this one's even over your bed. You sleep here. And so luckily, I guess, in a way, alcoholism saves the day because Harry Hole has not been sleeping in his bedroom. He's been sleeping on park benches mm -hmm. all around yeah. Oslo because he's too goddamn inebriated to get himself home to sleep in his own mold-infested bed. Our main character heads over to uh, his couch, seems to notice something either in his pocket or on the couch, pulls it out, and it's like a, a booklet of concert tickets that with a post that says, Oleg's birthday, November 21st, or something like that. And he seems to, like, groan as if he forgot that he had the tickets, or that he forgot the birthday, which later on doesn't make sense, but neither here nor there. He, I believe then, heads into work, if I'm not mistaken. That's, uh... Yeah, he goes yeah. into work. Oh, no, first he actually goes to see his ex at the art gallery. Charlotte Gainsbourg. Uh, his ex... <laughs> Okay, a, a running theme I noticed on the second viewing of this film is that we do not get character names until way, way later than we should have. Charlotte Gainsbourg's character, her name is Raquel, but we don't hear anyone say her name, I think, a, until a good 45 minutes into the film. 
which is true. Yeah. And in a mystery that is thick on plot, we need those details and the movie just doesn't give them to us. So yeah, it gives us plenty of detail about the state of black mold in this guy's apartment, but like, who is this woman you're talking to? I don't, what is going on? Harry Hole seems to have teleported to this art gallery for yeah. no reason, yeah. because we have him settling in on his couch. We hard cut to Charlotte Gangsborough in the art gallery where she seems to work, and she is trying to sell some Emmanuel Vigeland paintings. So she has this gallery, and she's talking a little bit about how this artist was inspired by this sort of poor parental upbringing that he had where uh. his father fell in love with a much younger woman and had a child out of wedlock, um, this bastard child. And then she turns to the window and looks directly at Harry Hole, who is just teleported outside of the window. <laughs> and so what this makes it seem like is just a setup of direct analogy where she was just finishing saying that their father who turned to drink and had an illegitimate child with a much younger woman cut to surprised face of uh -huh. you know, her surprised face of Harry Hole looking through the window. Well, so, speak of the devil. Is this a guy who, too, has turned to drink and had an illegitimate child with a much younger woman? I don't know, because <laughs> she's not a much younger woman than him. No. This doesn't really come to fruition, but... The parental lineage of her child is kind of called into question. So I don't know what they were doing with that. But mm -hmm. that was another thread that I'm like, well, film rhetoric dictates that we're drawing an analogy here, but I'm not sure we are. We get a, a little bit of conversation between the two of them. I think he asks, how is Oleg doing? Oh, he's doing good. I think he wants to meet his real father, but I don't think he's ready for that. Okay. Who's Oleg? Who are you? What even? Yeah, yeah. So once again, is this, yeah, Harry Hole's child, since we had the setup of the drinking dude who had an illegitimate child? Um, we also have a slight kind of tie-in that we know Oleg is whoever these concert tickets were for, right? right? But we don't actually know who Oleg is yet. Yeah. We also have pictures that are in Harry Hole's apartment of him with Charlotte Gangsborough and what seems to be a young boy. And why I'm kind of trying to paste these together is because later my second pin will be talking about the editing process of this and how the editor was trying to sort of patch together a narrative. So we're kind of like, oh, yes, just kind of, you know, like bringing that thread through. But the once again, the room is not floor successful. was full of cutscenes, sweat, and tears. I think. <laughs> yeah, so we're just seeing the build. So yeah, he's he's walking her by, and once again, this conversation that they are having is all clearly ADR yeah. stuff. It's all like very long shots, uh, very wide shots. And yet we're clearly hearing the discussion, right? It's yeah. not like we're hearing it from afar as they're across the bridge. Mm -hmm. We are just hearing it on our screen in pure, you know, clear audio, yeah. which really creates this strange dissonant disconnection between what's happening on screen and what the audience is hearing. Just, mm -hmm. it's a very bizarre POV. The bridge POV. Oh, God. Okay, well, Harry gets to work. This is where we get, uh, he gets to work and we get the commercial for the EV Sync 4. You're saying those aren't in the books, right? No, the EV, no, they are not in the book. Um, <laughs> I do remember when we saw this in theaters, I began cracking up because there's something about this scene that it, it, the explanation for this gigantic, 
like industrial iPad that the cops, the, the cops in Oslo apparently use to document cases goes on for so long. And there's so much detail about the technical specifications of this thing. I just began laughing in the theater because I'm like, oh, oh, OK, this movie's terrible. I get it now. Well, it is a bizarre piece of technology. So this thing, this finger sink thing, is a giant, like, 1995-looking Macintosh laptop <laughs> that they carry around with them. and They're just going to haul with them. Yeah. Um, it's fingerprint scanned in, and it just records all of the data of their cases and uploads and syncs to the cloud every 12 hours. I'm like, or... In 2017, you could have used your cell phones and did this instantaneously. <laughs> like, what are we doing? All of you have phones that could do this exact same thing. Why do you have something that weighs as much as 20 cell phones? And you wouldn't have to wait 12 hours for it to sync with the cloud. Right. So. Yeah, it was uh, that was just so strange to me. Uh, Harry is sitting in on this talk and then goes to kind of like sit in the cafeteria and a person comes up. This is meant to be his boss. This is the odd thing about watching it through the lens of reading the book. I immediately know who this character is, even though this character is nothing like he is in the book. This is Gunter Hagen, who is basically Harry's boss. And he comes in and says, uh, yeah, you got like a week's worth of mail there since you've been in. Harry's like, oh, yeah, my, uh, my uncle died. Your uncle died, did he? It's very clear his uncle did not die. This guy was just on a bender for a week. And his boss doesn't believe his bullshit. Yeah, boss isn't putting up with this bullshit. And he well, just tells him, like, okay, look, man, you got to shape up your act. The main character says, I do. I, I need a case to work on, man. I'm going crazy. Yeah, sorry, no one's been murdered yet, okay? I'm nothing without the job, man. Nothing without the job. If I don't have my job, all I have is the drink, man. What am I supposed to do? Yeah, the, the cliches pile up pretty quickly in terms of grizzled, bitter, private eye, or detective, whatever. Substituting one addiction for the other. Exactly, yeah. This is also when we get a, a close-up on an envelope that's addressed to our main character. And this is where, in the theater, when we saw this, I thought to myself, that cannot possibly be his actual name. Because I remember yeah. early super hot fumigation guy said Harry Hole, and now we see this envelope addressed to Harry Hole, and I think, n no, okay, okay, what, it, it's pronounced a weird way. There, there's no way that his name is Harry Hole. Yeah, and we were just going to let the hot mold guy get away with it, because we were yeah. like, you're, you're a hot, hot mold guy. You, yeah. can, you can call him whatever you want. I mean, no. tell me about black mold for hours, hot mold guy. I am talk into it. Talk dirty to me. <laughs> tell me about that mold. Talk moldy to me. I am, I'm down. Tell me, oh, it's right over my bed. Oh, oh, what a shame. <laughs> it's turning into a very different podcast. So yeah. the envelope says I'm Harry okay Hall. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I, I kind of the Yeah, he opens up the envelope, and this is where we get the first of the snowman letters, where it says, Dear Mr. Pol I forget the exact wording, but he says, Dear Mr. Policeman, you could freeze to death like that. You should be careful. By the time she's missing, I'll have already built her a tech stops and then the pan the camera just slowly pans down to a, a motherfucking snowman. A motherfuck as if drawn by a kindergartner. It's, it's like so just great. circle, slightly smaller circle above it, dot dot, 
series of dots that make a smile and like stick figure twig arms. It's like, what is this supposed to be menacing or threatening? Because it's a stick figure snowman. Give me a break. Which is what is great about it. And so this is the moment where at first you're like, okay, this this has some promise. Because mm. what wonderful, weird, whimsical wacko of a mind <laughs> is going to start killing people and leaving little snowmen and drawing little stick figures of a snowman and writing these messages to cops that make him sound like he's five. Like, I'm I'm looking forward to meeting the snowman killer yeah. because he seems like he's just whimsically nuts. It's not going to pay off, unfortunately. But in this moment, he even gets his own sort of special turquoisey blue stationery so that, you know, his stuff mm -hmm. kind of in theory, would stick out, but this film stock is going to be so undersaturated that it actually doesn't stick out that much. Also, the letter does say, while you were asleep, I was watching Mummy. M-U-M-M-Y. And this is also when you're like, okay, so is this a, a Britishism of mom? Or is this... Because once again, everything is going to be in English, even though yeah. this is sort of set in Norway. So this was a weird sort of choice to use this word. Or are we actually talking about some sort of Egyptian mummy? I don't mm -hmm. know. But either way, we have no fucking reference point for who mummy or mommy is in this equation. <laughs> Yeah, get used to that. So we're like, you you were watching who, dude? Like, why is we can't be threatened yet because we don't know what the fuck you're talking about, Snowman. Cut to mommy, mommy number one. Yes, mommy number one is walking through a parking lot, and gets a snowball thrown at her. Like, oh, she turns around, and it's very clear that could have come from absolutely nowhere because this is a giant parking lot. Someone would have had to have been very close to her to throw the thing. And they're not. The geography here makes no goddamn sense. Yeah. She gets in her car, begins to drive away. The car pulls away, and the camera just slowly moves a little bit. And in the background, a red car, lights turn on, and it's like another dramatic sting that might as well be dun dun dun. But there is this shot of the red Volvo in the snow, and my immediate thought was actually to the Star Trek reboot movie where they land on that snow planet and everything's super snowy and then this giant red reptilian creature starts chasing them <laughs> through the snow. <laughs> and even then there's that question of, this doesn't seem like a very good indigenous creature to this uh -huh. planet because yeah. it sticks out very, very clearly, right? Because we've got this red against the snow. Yeah, evolution dealt that creature a bad hand. <laughs> yeah, or maybe it's just it's a predator, so it doesn't give a fuck about blending. And maybe that's what's happening with this Volvo here as well. But in this moment, it does just stick out as if you're going to creep around and stalk women across the countryside, maybe pick like kind of a less conspicuous car color, color in snow, yeah. right? Letter color, yeah. I was like, your, your M.O. is to kill people when it's snowing outside. Why are you driving a red car? Like, get, get yourself in some silver. Oh, God. Uh, so as she's driving, uh, mommy number, mummy number one texts her daughter to say, like, hey, I'll be a little late. And we see a kid get this. And they both have this goofy, like, rabbit ear phone case on. Oh, my which... God. I made a note of that, too. I'm like, I want to punch this cell phone case in the face. I, and that it later on becomes so absurd looking when we're supposed to be really tense and we're shown goofy cell phone case with rabbit ears. Whatever. It's just not a practical case. It has no. these protruding ears off of the top of it. Like, you put that in your pocket. You can't. 
you can't do anything with that. It. Ugh. So yeah, this woman deserved to die for her cell phone case alone. Mummy number one gets home, gets out of her car, and her daughter sees her and like, bah, 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 jumping up and down. The mother's like, oh, you built a snowman. That's cute. What? The snowman. The snowman you built. But this goes, I swear this goes on forever. Mom takes a selfie of herself and the snowman to send to the daughter. It's a selfie of herself. Barely has the snowman in it. Uh, her husband, played by, I believe the actor's name is James Darcy, but I kept thinking this is the poor man's Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah, that's fair. But he's pissed, so she comes in, and he just appears out of nowhere, no introduction to this character, and just said, I told you I had to leave by eight. And he storms out, and you're like, okay, bro, like, we don't know who you are. This little girl is kind of scared of him because she goes to kind of like hide her cell phone underneath her. So the environment gets really tense suddenly. Although there's also, I don't know if you noticed this, there's this weird staging thing where the guy comes up the stairs from the basement. Uh The girl looks shocked and terrified and hides her phone real quick. And I'm like, is this guy not supposed to be in the house? Right. We have this setup (laughs) of like the snowman is outside. So maybe this is the killer. And then the mother comes into the house And she looks at the daughter and interacts with the daughter and does not seem to be addressing this man in the kitchen at all. She hides her phone. And as soon as her mom comes in, she jumps off off the chair, leaving the phone in plain sight. I mean, this kid looks like she's like five or six years old. I don't think like we can fault her for being bad at hiding things. But why even have her do that? It doesn't figure into the plot at all that she's hiding her phone from her dad. So what the hell? It does a little bit because we later learn that this is indeed her father, even though, yeah, the the finishing of that is that I've for about 30 seconds questioned whether this character could be seen by others in the scene because nobody was acknowledging him (laughs) until he intercut himself (laughs) and said, I told you I had to be out by eight and then he leaves. Imaginary. I'm like, is this the killer? Is this the ghost? Like, what are we, what's happening? And, but we do learn later that this is her father. He needed to go off on a business trip and that he felt very adamantly against his daughter having a cell phone. And so it sets up this beginnings of tension between the sort of mother and the father, that there is some domestic tension, there's maybe some not great communication, that there's a sort of push and take of control over parenting their child. So it's sort of setting up some things that would be suspicious stuff to pursue in a police investigation when the wife inevitably goes missing, only nobody's actually going to investigate her disappearance. So it's fine. It really doesn't matter. So unhappy dad heads out. Mummy and the kid, they get uh, they you know kind of get settled down into bed. There's this very odd shot. Uh, get used to a lot of shots through windows. So many shots through. It's windows. like this film's motif, and it means absolutely nothing. So they settle down, get down to bed. It's peaceful, and then suddenly snowball thrown at the window. Oh yeah. She's just getting stalked by snowballs. Kid is going to wake up super suspicious. Mm -hmm. She wakes up and she's like, where's mommy? Meanwhile, Harry Hole has gone to a bar and we just get a weird shot of him looking into a bar, followed by a jump cut to him just passed out in the alley next to the bar. It's not even a jump cut. That's the weirdest thing. It's a shot where his reflection is in the window of the bar. The shot pans over. There's no cut at all. We pan over and we see him laying outside the bar, passed out drunk. So what? 
Yeah, so no time... You're right, there. Jump cut was too generous. It just... He's looking in a bar, and then he's passed out. Yeah. Next like, to the bar. What? Maybe drunk. Maybe the mold got him. Maybe he's teleported and time-traveled. Yeah, he's just gonna have been passed out this entire time while people are getting killed. The kid is gonna wake up super suspicious. Mm -hmm. No reason for her to be suspicious, oh, no. but she wakes up suspicious. <laughs> and goes looking for her mother. We get no resolution on that yet. She's just yelling mom, and then we're gonna cut to some other stuff. Meanwhile, again, we get introduced to another character, Katrine, who has arrived at the Oslo police station. So she's just there. She's been transferred in from Bergen, apparently, and she's just going to start working this case. And they get called to the scene to investigate this suspicious disappearance of this kid's mother, who is just not there. And a neighbor has called the police for her because she's just been wandering outside in the snow. So Katrine and Harry Hole show up at the premises and more weird edits and cuts are going to happen yes. here. Uh, this is also a scene when they meet that Harry introduces himself and he says, Harry Hole. And again, when I was when I saw this in the theater, I said, they're doing this. His name is Harry Hole. I couldn't get over it at the time. I still can't. This is also around this time. They're going to kind of ask the kid a couple of questions and... At some point, Harry's going to ask her, why did you build the snowman facing the house? Also EADR'd in. Yeah. And the kid is going to say, I didn't build a snowman. And he's like, all right. And then he walks yeah. away. No follow-up nope. questions to this. That's all I need to know, Not, kid. None whatsoever. And then he's walking outside. And Brite Becker, I guess, is the woman who's missing. Mm -hmm. And a message of hers is going to start playing from some unknown source, like the cell phone. So the kid is inside the house calling her mother again to see if her mother will pick up her phone. We, with Harry Hole outside, hear her voicemail. <laughs> and then he sees footprints leading down into the basement of the house. Yeah. So that's going to happen. And then it's going to cut to him coming down the stairs. So we're thinking, oh, he's investigating the footprints that are leading down into the basement of the house. But then he seems to be walking down the stairs into a living room inside the house where the little girl is sitting on a couch in a donkey mask, listening to the voicemail on her mother's cell phone that he was able to hear from outside the house. And Harry, how does he introduce himself? He starts neighing. Because he, yeah. he's speaking the kid's language, right? And this is where we have this whole like kind of conversation about snowmen. So this is the kind of weird-ass shit we're dealing with. Katrine is going to kind of sneak down the stairs to listen to the conversation. Her cell phone's going to go off, just completely interrupting and ruining the flow of the interrogation here. And so Katrine not bringing a lot to the picture so far. <sighs> Pull your own weight, <laughs> Katrine. Come on. You Bergen star. At some point they get into a car, like they get back into Katrine's car and it's just Harry Hole in the car going through her stuff that she has uh, in there. And I did like yes. the production detail that she has a bunch of orange peels in her back seat. Sure, that was yeah. fun. So I just like that she's just kind of a hot mess that just eats all these oranges and just like leaves the peels in the back seat of the car. Not not a super tidy person. And yet she's got all of her files and stuff all over the place and a folded up magazine in the glove box that he's going to take out, and it's going to be another character we have not been introduced to yet. Um, J.K. Simmons' character, yeah. who's pictured in this magazine. So we get his name, at least, Arve Stope. And we have no... 
real reason to know anything yeah. about Who why this guy matters. But Who do we what do we care? To show us why he might matter, we're gonna get a flashback that is not connected to anyone yeah. in this present It's a flashback scene. that can't even really be called a flashback because no one is flashing back to it. This is not the memory of a character. We're just being shown something that happened nine years ago. Which is to say, meanwhile, nine years ago, yeah. Val Kilmer was a cop. Oh, boy. And the, yeah. And oh. working on a murder case of a woman that I guess was J.K. Simmons or Stop's secretary um, or assistant or something like that. Something. Who we later learn actually has nothing to do with the snowman killer. So I'm not yeah. really sure why we're getting this flashback whatsoever. But he, uh... at the time, is also going to have talk about this woman going to see a quote unquote pregnancy doctor. Yeah. I'm like, you mean a obstetrician or an OBGYN or a general practice? There's a lot of things you could call this woman other than a pregnancy doctor. So, yeah. And uh, we will have to address this really quick. This is where we get we start to get the infamous ADR of Val Kilmer. And the movie tries to hide <laughs> the fact that he's ADR'd really fast because when he the first few times he talks, it's from the like the shot is from his back. So we don't you know, actually see him talking. But when we do, it's, I I have uh, over in my life watched so many bad Japanese monster movies and bad foreign films. I have never seen dubbing this bad in my life. It's Nothing pretty awkward. It's, it doesn't match up. If the way that Val Kilmer is talking, it's very clear. It hurts him to move his mouth. And so it should not be a clear, distinct voice coming out. Like, the voice that this guy has is, like, deep. You know, it's deep, it's down here, and it's like a strong man voice. Why did you come to me? I've been suspended from the force. Why do you want me to help you find her? But it that doesn't at all look the way that it should sound. It Val Kilmer, I just feel so bad for the dude. He'll show up on like Reddit every now and then and do an AMA or just like have random comments on articles or posts there. And he comes off as a really good guy. And it's just sad to me that one, he had to like he had throat cancer, which is why his voice was so messed up and he couldn't actually speak in this film. And to go through that and then be in this movie and be treated like this in post-production is just insulting to me. Yeah, there's really no reason why they shouldn't have replaced him yeah. if he got to set and he couldn't speak. Right. So it is amazing that he is a survivor of cancer and mm -hmm. symptoms and sort of post-recovery are hell. And yep. so good for him to, for powering through that. Still, or they just should have let him use his, his voice because as muffled as mm -hmm. it was or strained... It might have added something interesting. In an in in interview, I've seen interviews with him, and he describes himself as sounding like Sylvester Stallone on Quaaludes. Uh, yeah, like his, once again, something interesting. Even if he were to use his own voice here, it isn't really a voice you would want a character like this to have, but given his mannerisms when he speaks, it's maybe like the voice should be a, like much more raspy or gravelly, you know, instead of, you know, why did you come to me? I've been suspended. It should be more like... Why did you come to me? It really just, it is, as you mentioned, his mouth and tongue are visibly swollen. And mm -hmm. so anything that didn't sound like his voice yeah. 
in a swollen capacity is just not going to match with the lip I sync. guess the, my point is that like there were if you're if you have to have Val Kilmer here and he has to be dubbed, there were ways to do this better very easily than what they went for here. And what they went for here is a horrible choice. But the movie makes many of them, so why should I dwell on this one so much? I don't know. I just love Val Kilmer. I'm sorry, man. Well, the thing is, is I'm not Get sure we actually eyes, do need Val Kilmer in this movie. So, <laughs> at all. This character is not necessarily necessary. So, True. we're going to have him, yeah, working on this case that isn't actually going to be related to the snowman no. killer. But then he also is going to apparently respond to a case that is related to the snowman killer, maybe, because our second flashback, not flashback with him, um, is going to be him being informed that a group of school children have found her, so apparently a mm -hmm. body. And then he goes up to a mountain, yeah. this snowy clusterfuck of a landscape, stares down another character without saying anything and then walks out into the snow this little cute snowman is gonna be there marking yeah. like hey this is our snowman killer he's gonna peer over the side of this really steep icy ledge where vultures are just feasting on the body because apparently there is no other responder at the scene to keep the vultures <laughs> off of the crime scene um, shoots his gun into the air, the vultures scatter, and we just see this very precariously sort of laid out, dismembered corpse on the hillside with this question of, wow, how did somebody even drag a body down there? How did they position them down there? And then you remember that this body was apparently found by a group of school yeah. children. And you're like, what? <laughs> what the fuck were school children doing on this treacherous ledge of a mountainside that took like a gondola to get to? It, it reminds me of, uh, of of that uh, opening like when we in uh, this is an auto reference, but in Twin Peaks Firewalk with Me, when we meet Chet Desmond, just Chet Desmond, one of the FBI agents, he is seen arresting prostitutes with their hands up against a school bus in the middle of a field with a bunch of crying children. I say that because that situation is equally as absurd as what we are given here. No, I think that situation makes sense. <laughs> that has a narrative line of possibility. Like, there are reasons why that guy might be getting arrested off of a bus full of school children that he's taken to a field. Man. This is confusing in that there's just no school children around. There's no presumable reason why school children yeah. should be there or even an access point for them to be there. So what I think is actually happening is we are combining once again two separate sort of pieces of footage from what we're going to be two separate as, crimes uh, and just trying to have a follow-up thing in this as, editing process. As Velcomus Garrett is uh, Gert Rafto, this, this detective from Bergen. As he is going up, there is a quick shot that he looks at another car going down, and it's full of a bunch of kids crying and a teacher comforting them. But it happens very quick, and yeah, oh my god, does it? I oh, yeah, totally yeah, missed that. I'm get used to important details to the plot being like something you have to like catch in a split second. That's gonna happen a lot in this. What film. were children doing yeah. up there? I don't understand. Again, yeah, exactly. When your film is making less sense than the David Lynch joint, you got you, come on, come on, and you're. Your mystery, your, your plot should be lucid, and you make less sense than the David Lynch film. Ugh. So, 
the new detective Katrine and Terry are eating at a diner, and we're going to learn the stellar revelations of their crack detective work so far, in that they found out that every time the snowman killer has struck, it has been yeah. snowing. And the audience is like, um, it's Norway in winter, so yep. there are women that seem to be married and maybe yes. have children. And this is the uh, the profile they're working off oh, of. Boy. So it's a woman that is present in the snowfall in, yeah, boy. in Norway. Yeah, narrowed, narrowed it down to that niche group. And then for some reason, out of nowhere, this really great shot happens where Katrine goes, are you hungry? And Harry Hole is just going to turn his sausage towards her and he's going to have cut it up in a dissected manner like the corpses of the snowman in the flashback of the thing for that no neither of them were present for i guess they he maybe he read the file and saw that the woman was cut up like that but what the fuck harry but there's no reason to just like cut your sausage that way with yeah. no commentary he did see mm -hmm. the picture of the woman who had been dismembered because i did make a note on the weird amount of blood that was present yeah. in that picture because it wasn't enough blood present at the scene. They're not going to get into this. It's just me noticing that there wasn't enough blood present at the scene for her to have been dismembered there. But it also wasn't a little enough blood for her to have been dismembered elsewhere. So it was just kind of this strange production thing where they just didn't put either enough blood for the body or they didn't drain it enough. Harry read that and he's it. like, oh, I'm going to do this badass thing where I cut my sausage like a little bit. I take it and I, oh my God, if Katrine comes in here and she at, and I get to ask if she's hungry, oh, this is going to be great. This is going to be so awesome. Yeah, I'm Harry Hole. Well, this is I'm just another place where it kind of seems like Harry Hole might actually be our I snowman that, killer. Yeah. I, like that, I like that working theory. Doing sort of uh, meanwhile, somewhere, two Russian women exist. Exactly. <laughs> two Russian women approach a gated house. One of them is younger, looks concerned. The older one just is like, no, go, go, go in there, go, go. She slowly walks up to the house. Some guy opens the door and she's like, oh, oh, geez, oh, I don't know. Goes in, and the older woman's like, well, my job is done. Gets in the car. Movie says, fuck you. Scene's over. Moving on. And we will never see that woman again. We'll see the one that went into the yes. house, but we won't see the other yeah. one. And we won't bring up anything about Russians this, ever again. This is one of the many moments of the movie just saying, you know what? Fuck you, audience. Moving on. Meanwhile, Harry Hole is complaining that he can't sleep. Oh, Once again, man. the audience is going, are you sure about that? Because so far, all we've seen you do is pass out on park benches and alleyways. I can't I think sleep. you sleep fine. Yeah, his <laughs> ex-wife's boyfriend is a doctor, and he's like, oh, well, fuck, man, I can totes write you a subscription. Hang on a second. Like, gets his phone out. Harry's like, you can do that on your phone? Yeah, I can. Huh. Thanks. Not legally, <laughs> but yeah, he, he writes him a prescription <laughs> without an appointment. So Mateus is... He's introduced first as a plastic yes. surgeon um, that can write prescriptions for sleeping pills. Although I was watching this with a couple of people, one of whom is a pharmacist. Uh -huh. And so apparently the prescription that he writes him is for a drug that does not exist in real life that was created for this, either the movie or the novel. I don't know if it's also not in the, the novel. novel, but it is not a, a real one. But then when you look at the ingredients underneath it... Um, it is the same thing oh. as Valium. So he wrote him a prescription for Valium. Just say Valium then. God damn it. And then Mateus is Charlotte Gangsborough's Raquel's mm -hmm. boyfriend. Yeah. Later, Harry is going to toss these sleeping pills outside his window 
for he whatever takes the Neil Green approach to, to him. him. He's like, "Where are my pills? There are my pills. I don't need these pills." Toss. But then later, about twenty minutes later, they are going to show back up in his medicine I do cabinet. I need these pills. So. I don't know if the snowman has put them back there or if they just sort of forgot that like they had him throw them out the window. We do find that he brings up those concert yep. tickets again. So the concert tickets oh, come back okay. up and he says, I, I got these these concert things for Oleg. Can I bring him for his birthday? And so this is a weird sort of time thing again where he at the beginning of the movie seems to have had these tickets and was upset that he almost forgot to give it to him on his birthday. But now this concert is happening. So there's like a strange time collapse thing where it's like this concert probably should have happened earlier, but he comes and he takes him to the concert. It's a very weird kind of like experimental (laughs) music. I meant to look up who the band was, but it seemed like a curious thing to take your son to and a weird venue because this guy's like rocking out on the stage, but they're in sort of like theater seats and then there's strobe lights. And um, so this is where we get more weird stuff. So they are watching the concert and Oleg is going to get a text Mm -hmm. that says like, emergency message for Harry. So apparently, and it's from Katrine. So Katrine has Oleg, this kid she's never met before. She has his cell number and she's going to text it for Harry. I I guess Harry doesn't have a cell phone. Like, has does he borrow different cell phones? I can't honestly, I I I feel like he's always taking other people's cell phones. So it's like he doesn't have a cell phone of his own, uh, nor a car. It's established earlier on. He does not have a driver's license, which you... well, probably because he has too many DWIs. I would imagine, but, but I, in the novel, it's more implied, like, he doesn't have a driver's license just because he doesn't really need one. It's He lives in Oslo. Tr- public transportation is fairly decent, so he does okay for himself. But but he's also a cop, yeah. so he should have really transportation should, yeah. to get himself to places quickly. He should also have a cell phone in 2017 yeah. for the same reasons, because he's a cop. He's a detective. Uh... What's extra great about this cell phone call, he's going to call Katrine back. They're going to kind of meet up. What this emergency message is, is that a husband has reported his wife missing. And yet this emergency message that she dragged him out (laughs) of a concert with his son for, they're not going to do anything about it until the next morning. They're just going to drop this kid off. At 80 yard, he says, we'll go in the morning. Cut to... Harry in his underwear looking at the bottle of pills and toss them out the window. Like, I'm not sleeping tonight either. And so the next day on the way up to this emergency response call, another really wonderful continuity moment is that she's going to tell him that the husband has reported his wife missing at 20.05 mm. uh, last night. And the actually one of the people I was watching this with was like, but wait a minute, the cell phone that she texted emergency message to was 1903. <laughs> I'm like, really? So we took it back. And sure enough, she sent Oleg a message at 1903 emergency message for Harry and then drags him out. And apparently then an hour later, right, the husband calls to report the emergency message at 2005. Oh. This in a fun really well detailed competent movie what would be amazing is if that was Uh on purpose and she was part of like if that was an embedded clue right for the audience Mm -hmm. to figure out no it's not oh god no no 
but that was one of those ones where I was like, wow, that would be actually really cool for some sort of murder mystery thing to kind of use time discrepancy, which people might think is continuity error, to actually sort of implicate who is, is doing what here. No, it's just a, a crazy thing. And then we get up to victim number two. Not mommy. Yeah, not mommy. Chloe Sevigny, who beheads chickens <laughs> at her farmhouse. <laughs> She has been reported missing by her husband, only she she's not missing. And when she calls her husband, uh, he's like, I, I didn't report you missing. And so that's a little strange. But she's like, no, nah, I'm, I'm good. You can leave. Yep. So they're going to leave. And then the snowman killer is going to come out from the bushes. And I just thought, OK, so he, you know, he obviously is the one who's calling in as pretending to be the husband to report her missing which he did the previous night at like 8.05 p.m., right? And so this poor bastard has had to hide in the bushes <laughs> since 8.05 I thought the police the were going to come night. sooner than that. Jeez, I've been sitting out here with my weird wire thingy. Oh, man. Because he was like, I want to play with the police officers. So apparently the plan was to have them show up once, check that she was okay, and then kill her. But he had to wait about 12 hours in the uh, bushes to, to get the shit done because the police waited until the following morning to do it, which is really kind of cold. Uh, it's going to be hard to use this wire thing if I my hands are numb. I hope they get here soon. So, I mean, he had plenty of time to build some snowmen, I guess, but I'm not sure he even does that yet. So he, he sets up his old little snowman thing, kills her, and they come rushing back for another some reason. This is another great, another great case of both ADR and a clear indication that they did not have enough footage. They're driving away, and it seems like it's like just minutes later after this last scene with Clovis Sevigny. Uh, and we hear on the radio, hey, the, we just got a call, missing persons case. They asked for Harry specifically, uh, Sylvia Otterson. And they're like, no, we just got back from Sylvia Otterson. She's fine. No, no, no. This one just came in two minutes ago. This is a new one. Like, fine, we'll turn around. And, well, Harry has to say, okay, turn the car around. Mind you, this entire conversation, radio and the response to it, is just a shot of the car driving down the road. Harry says, turn the car around. The car doesn't turn around. It just keeps going. So they didn't re they didn't film this conversation happening, and they didn't even film the car turning around. So they go back, and she's not missing. Her body's there. Her head's yeah. just gone. But still not a missing person's uh, case no. at all. And... Uh, they they go around, they, they look for a while, they drive a snowmobile across the snow-infested desert plain landscape of her front yard to go the five feet over to the grain yep. storage, and they find the snowman body with Chloe Sevigny's head on it. Um, so apparently he's being all, all playful. Once again, we've completely dropped the ball on this whole snowman rights taunting letters yeah. to the police. Because <laughs> I think Harry Hole is only going to get the yep. one um, from before. So we're just dropping the plot line that this is his MO. Uh, we also, this is the only snowman we're going to find with a head on it. Uh -huh. So I guess he's experimenting. He's trying some shit out. And then we're suddenly going to cut to an alive Chloe Sevigny outside of the, like, the farmhouse. Who are you? And you're like, hey, I'm a twin. Oh, twins. Of course. 
Yeah, of course. And so she just exists to sort of say, like, okay, I know she doesn't have children and thus doesn't fit the profile, only she could have had a child, but she had it aborted because she fucked so many men that she didn't even know who the baby daddy was. And now I'm going to leave the scene and never be seen again. Yeah, pretty much. The movie again just says, all right, yep, fuck you, moving on. And then we get J.K. Simmons' character finally yes. introduced. J.K. Simmons playing R.V. Stope, who is, uh, I believe, introduced over a PA system as the king of industry, R.V. Stope, and the proud sponsor of uh, Oslo's bid for the Winter Games. They never say Olympic Games because I think there's a copyright issue there. Whatever. The not Olympics. They're trying to get to Oslo. Yeah, and so he's going to be set up as this sort of playboy philanthropist possibly human trafficker that meets up with his his little friend who yeah, has the russian woman i love that in yeah he a as he's like giving a speech to everybody his little friend like drags the woman in and like makes sure he makes sure that Aubrey can see him and the woman and is pointing at her like huh yeah yeah i got one and Arby gives him a look like dude i'm fucking working right now come on like, we traffic multiple women a day. Why are you bringing this one to me just to Ugh. show me her boobs? Which he does. He kind of, like, peels yeah. down the dress. And then J.K. Simmons does this great, like, little cell phone snap real quick oh, of yeah. her face. This is going to be a great character <laughs> thing that he does just to, <laughs> for no reason other than to just sort of dismantle people, I guess. Just to just, like, go up to them and, like, randomly just take a, a flash picture oh. of their face. I kind of want to start doing this to people just to be an <laughs> asshole. Meanwhile, Harry Hold decides that he needs to take a long trip to Bergen. Yeah. He needs to to get on the a train, a I, plane, and a boat. A, a train a, a train ride, which I looked it up. The train ride from Oslo to Bergen, you're going clear across Norway. It's like a seven hour train ride, so no small feat. And as he uh, <laughs> as he's like on the train, who is he bumping into? Oh hey Matthias, what's going on? Explains that he is going to a conference on hormonal <laughs> injection therapy because yeah. plastic surgeons need mm-hmm. to stay on top of shit. Um, meanwhile, another flashback. <sighs> so we get Val Kilmer yep. is back. He's also a super drunk, just like Harry. He's also getting the one letter yep. from the snowman that I also suspect was a letter that was initially meant for Harry because he was like, I saw you in your little hut. Like... It seemed to be kind of in reference to Harry's yeah. sort of passed out thing. It's that he referencing the hut that we beginning. haven't seen yet that this character owns, that, that Gert Rafto owns. Yeah, um, and so, I, I don't know. So he gets another kind of just ambiguous message. He's getting super drunk, and he's going to drunkenly start pissing off the side of the police precinct into the river and it's going to be one of the greatest cuts in cinematic history when he's mid piss and then it's going to cut back to Harry talking about Val Kilmer's character when he said I heard he was a great detective <laughs> <laughs> and he's going to deliver that not ironically uh, he's earnest I heard that he was a great detective great detective because he's in Bergen asking about Val Kilmer's character because for some reason, he thinks he needs to, yeah. to sort of follow up on this. And then Katrine is still just sort of stalking J.K. Simmons because yep. she's, for whatever reason, super hellbent on this is the guy mm-hmm. who is the snowman killer. Even though he shows no signs of anything that might 
be connected to detective work with the snowman case. But nobody's doing any detective work anyway, so it doesn't matter. And then Harry teleports back to to Oslo. Uh, at this point, I believe uh, the snowman killer has turned on he turned on mummy number mummy number one's phone. People who can track these things, they call up Harry's phone. Katrina answers, what's going on? Oh, we got a signal from that phone of that missing person. Here's where it's at. Okay, great, thanks. Giving this, all this information to Katrine, not knowing really who she is, whatever. Katrine, she's on the case. She heads over there. Uh, she can't find the phone, despite the fact that it's vibrating in the room next to her as it's ringing. Whatever. Walks out, opens up a garage door, and oh, man! Some guy has his head blown off. Oh, no. Who was kind of the guy that was trafficking Russian women. Kind of. Yeah, we spoke with them earlier. He was like kind of sketchy. We don't know what his deal is, but his head's gone now. So oops, a daisy. He does have a great scene at one point where he's trying to answer the police's questions. And he's sitting in this very particular manner on the couch mm -hmm. with his toenails painted and his yep. legs kind of crossed. It's a great physical performance, except for he's wearing these capris. And I'm like, I cannot support <laughs> the choice to wear capris. <laughs> like, you need to roll those pants down. Other than that, yeah, this guy was kind of fun. Yeah. So Harry Hole is back in Oslo, and he's going to go and see... Raquel, Charlotte Gangsborough, and they're just gonna dry hump against each other on the living room floor. And really, ever since I saw Antichrist, anytime I see Charlotte Gainsborough get into a cowboy position on someone, I'm like, oh no, don't don't do it, man. Don't do it. I see what this woman does. It's gonna get scary. She's she's gonna go von Trier's on that dick. Yeah, she'd be a really fun fuck, but this is not that moment. No. She just kind of she's a good grind. pumps against him a little bit. There's no attempt to take off pants. I'm wondering if it's just because Harry is such an alcoholic and now volume user that he just wasn't getting hard, and so she's like, "Fuck it, yeah. like I'm just gonna I'm gonna get off of you instead of get off on you." But oh, that wordplay. Oh, there's, you. Yeah, there's uh, there's some stuff that's not going on here is really what's happening. Um, but then Mateus calls and is like, where are you? And she's like, well, I'm over at Harry's house, not fucking him, but maybe fucking him. I don't know. Back at the J.K. Simmons plotline, we've got Katrine, who has trying to trying to fuck him so that uh, she can tape him. Yeah, a really weird random detail I noticed here. When she goes to the party, which is going to be, it's the announcement party for like the international committee of the not olympics is going to announce where the not olympics are going to be she goes to that party when she walks in she's let in by the russian woman and i didn't i swear i didn't notice this until like the second time watching i had to pause i'm like wait a minute is that the russian woman who that he took a picture of earlier it is and there's no explanation for it well she just belongs to him now i guess i guess I so she's like you fuck i you fuck me and you open my doors that's what you do so the um, the guy who seems to have committed suicide, the Russian trafficker, yeah. in his garage is blamed for the snowman murders right. because he's got all the disembodied parts mm -hmm. in his freezer. We find the disembodied parts of mommy number one in there, Berta Becker. And Katrine's like, I'm not buying this because it's J.K. Simmons. And so she goes to try to finagle some sort of honey trap set up in his room. 
with the fingerprint laptops yeah. from 1995. In my notes, I wrote them. down she hides, quote unquote, the Evie sink. Like, this is the least hidden camera of all. She might as well put an IMAX camera on the yeah. shelf to film this guy. And so J.K. Simmons gives her a room key to go up and get herself ready. And he makes her wait a while. Yeah. Like, he's taking his time to get up there. He's got shit to do, and it's not yet her. And so she's just hanging out on this bed in the dark when the snowman killer comes, kills her. Like, that That ship sails really, I guess, really yeah, quickly. yeah, poisons her somehow. Yeah. And the the camera records all of this, but... Snowman Killer goes right over and deletes all of it because it hasn't been 12 hours since it's uh, yep. been able to sink. Therefore, making this entire added plot point of having these machines completely unnecessary. Darn, if only there was some type of technology available in 2017 that just synced things to the cloud automatically whenever you did a thing. But also, you just didn't even need to introduce that as a plot point because nothing comes of recording every single moment of whatever they're doing. One thing does, but it's still nothing that couldn't have been recorded with a goddamn iPhone. What comes of it? Well, later, Harry is going through her Eevee sink and she's and he's looking at the last file. Well, not, not her Eevee sink, but he's looking at the last files that were uploaded. And one of them is a video recording of her talking to the, the, the husband of mummy number one, Philip Becker. He says something that gives Harry a clue, like, oh, something is amiss here, but we'll get to that when we, when we get to Well, we're to getting it. it, we're right now, because okay. we're at, like, the last, like, well, five yeah. minutes of the movie. At any rate, yeah, so, yeah, Har the last thing we see of Harvey Stope of J.K. Simmons is, like, they've just announced, yeah, Oslo gets the Olympics, he walks back to his room with some big dick energy, he's like, yeah, fucking A, man, time for a victory lay. Gets in his room, no one's there. Huh, bummer. And that's it, that's all we ever see of him again. So after that, the next day, Harry looks out his window, sees not a, not a, like a ball snowman, but like the outline of a snowman drawn on a car under, like beneath his apartment, goes out to look at it. And inside is dead Katrine. Oh no, dead Katrine. And she's missing a finger. That's no good. Goes to police headquarters. Uh, he's talking to their tech people and they say, this is the last thing that was uploaded from her Eve sink. And it's a video recording of her interrogating Philip Becker again. He's like, this, we've talked a hundred times. Enough of this. And she says, but this this date on your calendar, it's off. And the guy that you said you were going to go and see, uh, he wasn't even there that day. What's that all about? Oh, how can I know how like when we go to see him? And that's the, the thing that tips off Harry. He says, how do I know? How can I remember when we go to see him? Apparently, it means something that they both went to see a doctor that day harry it really doesn't though it doesn't it whatever harry goes back and he talks to philip becker again philip becker reveals okay yeah we went to a doctor and i realized that my daughter can't be mine because i'm infertile and harry's like wait who did you go to see about this oh some hormone specialist who by the way has already been set up as a plastic surgeon yeah so why... so should have nothing to do with this OBGYN so appointment. So the big not twist of the movie in that the twist, the twist makes no sense. So it's not a twist. Mateus is the snowman killer. Apparently. Cut to Ra Raquel's apartment. Mateus walks in. He looks creepy. Uh, Harry is now like in salvage mode. Like, oh dear God, calls up, like tries to call, 
Yo, Raquel up. She doesn't answer. Okay, basically, Mateus is going to go and kidnap Raquel, throw her in the trunk. He's going to take her out into his original homestead in Telemark that we saw in the opening scene. And he's somehow going to pick up Oleg along the way. They're going to be tied up at the same table that he was tortured at as a child by his father. And then somehow, having worked all this out, Harry Hole arrives at the homestead and... This sort of like back and forth ensues of I hate women because women, my mother abandoned me as a child. And so now I kill all women who are not good mothers and cheat on their spouses. So that's like his two MO, right? They had to cheat on their spouse and not sort of allow the their child to have a good, wholesome relationship with their biological father or just abort them. Because, oh, or just abort them. Yeah, I mean, there's there's MOs across the board yeah. here, right? Um, and so at first, Mateus is going to kind of like run out the door with Harry Hole kind of pursuing him. They're going to have an ice chase. And the one really amazing moment where Harry Hole loses sight of Mateus. And so he's walking across the ice. <laughs> oh, God. And he's just yelling, come on, I'm right here. Come get me. And just from outside of the shot, some... Gun fires and boom, Michael Fassbender just goes down. <laughs> I remember the whole theater losing it when that happened, when this was out. And like everyone just began laughing because it's such, it, it's just so stupid that he like screams out like, I'm ready. Pow. Ugh. He goes down and then Mateus like takes a few steps and walks into frame. So he was just out of the shot, like by maybe, maybe. 10 feet there was nothing over there for him to hide behind nowhere he could have been like you know it's a frozen lake there's nowhere else he could have been but that's the movie that we have so Mateus just like he's like all right it's over you know you'll get what's coming to you like they all did it was always their fault and Harry says no no it wasn't your mother you should have been mad at it was your father your father was the one who didn't want you to be alive oh and this doesn't phase Mateus. And so, in the most underwhelming end to a character ever, he walks towards Harry, and before he can take a shot, he falls through the ice. Yep. And just sinks like a rock. Right down, not like a moment where he like falls in and like he's like, oh my god, blah, 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 blah. none of that. No, just... he just gives in to that cold, icy death, just like his mother had done 30 years prior in the same icy grave location. Harry, he walks somewhere. Uh, the ma, ma, Raquel and Oleg, they're safe inside the house. He opens a garage door, I think, even though there's no garage in that room, sees them, breathes a sigh of relief, Movie says, fuck you, one last time. Cut to a briefing room in a high school classroom. Everyone's sitting in in high school desks. And a guy says, yeah, some woman had a bunch of stab wounds. We don't know what the weapon is. And Harry, now with a goth metal finger uh, prosthetic where his actual finger was cut off, says, I'll take it. Credits roll. The snowman, everybody! Oh my god, what a ride it was. Fuck this movie. So, what to do with this movie? So, as we (sighs) mentioned before, this was a clusterfuck of an editing exercise Mm -hmm. that 
the director mentioned even a week before it came out. So even before this movie was getting reviewed, it's already doing by damage the way, control. we didn't film 10 to 15% of the script. And a lot of people seem to just use this as the blanket excuse for what's happening here, saying, oh, well, they didn't, you know, they didn't film it. That doesn't actually explain how and why this movie got released anyway. And really, that explanation is always so strange to me because there's no other... If you Google this movie, Google the snowman, the vast majority of stories about it will be about how they didn't film that 10 to 15%. And that story pops up on, like, at least a dozen different websites that had an article about this. But every one of those websites goes back to this interview that the director gave with the Norwegian Royal, uh, the, the main broadcasting company in Norway, where he explained that, like, yeah, we didn't get to film all of the thing. And there's no other primary source for that fact. Just that one interview of the director saying, like, we didn't get to film. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We were rushed. We, we couldn't film it. And that's it. There's no other interview with anyone else about the making of this thing. Aside from a few, like, I noticed on the same website as the director gave his interview, there are some interviews with anonymous crew members from Norway who said working on this thing was fucking grueling. Like, there were some crew members that said, like, I racked up 200 hours of overtime for that month, which 200 hours of overtime in a month is absurd. No one should be working that much, let alone on a Hollywood film. Uh, so clearly something was very amiss during the making of this thing, whether or not they got the actual like full shoot done or there really was a missing 10% of the script they didn't film. Yeah, I mean, they clearly are missing something. I don't know how you fail to shoot 10 to 15% of your script because that's a, a pretty substantial chunk overall, especially for a mystery or a, a murder type of piece together movie. But... There are people on set. I mean, there are script supervisors whose sole job it is to make sure you film your whole movie. There would have been post or pre-production to decide what was getting shot and where, what needed to be shot in certain scenes in certain locations. And so I, I would almost believe a we shot it, but then 10 to 15 percent of the footage was missing like it got deleted yeah. somehow or we we're like missing a canister I, I would get that but that's not the story that's being told and they still had reshoots yeah. um so the production thing here is that they did film um they have film dates registered from january to april and then about a year later they did reshoots and so that's a decent chunk of time to film a movie um so I don't know where the rush and the crunch came from. I don't know why they felt like their production had to be rushed. None of these questions are being answered other than production was too rushed and we only got to shoot X amount. I'm like, yeah, but why? Mm -hmm. Right. There's something here that is a gaping hole of a mystery that <laughs> is not really coming together for me in terms of the production yeah. and what happened there. Something was amiss, and it def it feels like the director is making an excuse for something. And then why this gets released anyway, right? Yeah. A lot of projects don't quite come together in post, and they get shelved. And right. so I also couldn't really find anything on what really pushed this through, unless it was just that Martin Scorsese had a lot of money and was like, all right, let's, let's get this shit done, uh... or maybe had sway with studios. But I don't really know why he'd want his name still attached to this. So... That's the other crazy thing is that there are a lot of people attached to this movie that should make it 
way better than it is or should know better. Mm -hmm. And so our director, um, Thomas Alfredson, is going to be the man who brought us Let the Right One In and Tinker T Soldier Taylor Spy or whatever that Both is. Both very Both solid of them very competent films. This was originally slotted to be directed by Martin Scorsese, who dropped out of the project but maintained his role as an executive producer. And then the editor on this oh film, God, to me, yeah. is the most interesting thing. So the initial editor was Claire Simpson, um, and she's done some stuff, but she was having some problems with how the fuck do I do anything with this? So Martin Scorsese brought in his, like, right-hand powerhouse of an editor, Thelma Schoonmaker. Who is legendary in the movie business. I mean, she's worked on everything, like, I think since Raging Bull with him. Yeah, she's pretty much done all Martin Scorsese's stuff. She has eight Oscar nominations. She has three Oscar wins for editing, um, which were for Raging Bull, Aviator, and The Departed. Makes sense. She, yeah, Raging Bull is consistently renowned as one of the best edited films of all time. This is a very competent editor. And so that's another just fascinating thing to think about is that they had the best of the best working at trying to put a narrative edited together for this film. Could you imagine what this film would be <laughs> with somebody who did not have that kind of line of credentials? Oh, yeah. Which is why I was bringing up some of the, the editing kind of threads earlier, is that this film tried in some ways. The editor, you could kind of see the editor trying to yeah. create sort of a story, but you can also just see where it horribly fails. Another thing that's kind of curious to think about is that there is still a lot of footage here. And yes, this footage is being harvested and used in different ways. Mm -hmm. But the exercise of trying to think about what this movie, what these scenes initially were intended to be and do in the original film. For example, that opening scene where you have the ADR over like, he's your son. OK, well, I'm running away. What? was the initial intent of that scene. What was going to be the reason he stormed out? Because clearly it's not her saying, he's your son, because if that was going to be the intent, they would have had that footage because they were there that day. They shot that scene. So what was the thing that motivated him to run away? Clearly the suicide of his mother was not meant to follow the car chase. So what was going to be the thing that set her off to commit suicide? We've got long things of Harry and Raquel walking on a bridge. What were those for, if not for the conversation that was ADR'd in? So there's all of these kind of just mystery things of piecing back together the movie that was supposed to be. And the trailer plays into that, too. We get footage in the trailer that doesn't make it in the movie or that makes it in the movie in a different way. So him opening the garage door at the end into the kitchen, we get the follow through of that in the trailer. He opens a garage door and looks at a car. So there is an entire other found murder that just didn't make it into this movie. We get Chloe Sevigny getting caught into a bear trap in the trailer that's maybe the twins death i don't know but we don't get her death either so there's just so much of this that was apparently carved away to try to get these little shots to sort of stitch into other scenes and yeah i just don't know what the original intent was because there's some scenes that just make no sense outside of their place in the narrative now yeah one interesting thing to me uh 
on the podcast how did this get made uh they they covered this film themselves which their format is very different than ours obviously like they're three comedians making fun of a movie but on their uh, on their podcast about this they go to the audience for questions at one point later in the show and a woman stands up and she says oh yeah my name's stella i have to use a different name when i talk about this because i worked on this film and they're like what you worked on this film and she's like yeah yeah and they're like well what the fuck? What, what was going on here? And she's like, well, I only worked on it for a short period of time, but I can tell you a few weird things. And they're like, okay, what the hell was with the like explosion in the trailer that's not in the movie? And she says, oh yeah, that was like this whole thing where Harry was going to see the house explode and he was going to think that his family had like died inside of it. And then he sees that there's foot trails going out to the lake. And that's where he confronts Mateus and... He was going to have to choose between getting the killer and saving his family from breaking through the ice. Okay. And they're like, oh, well, yeah, that's terrible. Why would you do that? That's... Why would he save the killer breaking through the ice? Exactly. Like, why is that a choice? Yeah, that's... It's... This is one of those things where, like, sometimes people talk about studio meddling in films. They'll say, you know, release the Snyder Cut, man. Like, the original cut the director before the studio got in there was great. I think this is a case where, like, Anything that was originally in there is complete shit, and what we have is the best version of the shit. It's still shit, but it's the best version of it. Although there's still the question, so his family, his quote-unquote family, even though it's his ex-girlfriend and her child, who doesn't seem to be his... They just kind of hang out yeah. in the kitchen. So they have a lot of faith that Harry's going to be the one that's coming back. Because at this point, they are untied. They could leave. Yeah. Right? They maybe don't want to just hang around in the house of the guy who just kidnapped him. But uh, no, they, they just chill there on the kitchen floor. Yeah. It, uh, so there's that. Those are the production qualms that happened. Uh, I noticed in the opening credits, it says that th- three writers are credited for working on this thing. Which anytime I see that many credited writers, that probably means there are about five other guys who like were messing around with the original script that weren't credited. So that's always troublesome to me. At this point, I feel like I can get into the book versus the movie. Yeah, go for it. Okay, so upon reading this thing, my first impression when I finished it was, this is a book that should not be a movie. This is a book that should be like a true detective type of thing, where it's like a one season long, at like maybe six to eight, maybe ten episodes, where you can draw it out. Because there's enough information in here and enough backstory for characters to where you can create something a bit more comprehensive that makes a lot more sense. The characters in this book versus the movie, some of the characters are very accurate. Like I said, Michael Fassbender and... Rebecca Ferguson are pretty good casting for their their book counterparts. They're both described the same way. Uh, at one point, Katrine Bratt is described as Kate Moss hot by one of the characters, which, yeah, okay, that, right. that kind of fits. Harry, I think the biggest difference with Harry in book versus film is that in the book, Harry is an alcoholic, but he's in the book he's a recovering alcoholic and actually only drinks one time in the entire book. When we meet him, he's not waking up on a child's park bench. He just wakes up in his own house, kind of looks himself in the mirror. He's like, oh, man, this hurts a lot more now that I'm 40. 
He's like, ah, oh, I need a drink, but nope, not going to do that. We get some backstory that he was, at one point, he's like a famous Norwegian detective because he's the only Norwegian detective to have studied with the FBI in America and has caught a serial killer in the past. He went on a talk show uh, called Boza in Norway and unfortunately had a few drinks before he went on and came off as very drunk and afterwards partied with the television crew, woke up like passed out in an alley and uh, several months since then has not had a drop, hasn't had anything to drink. So he is, for the time, trying to stay sober. Interesting. Well, they do kind of drop the alcohol plot when it suits them yeah. in the movie, which is interesting. So he comes passes out a bunch yeah. at the beginning, and then he doesn't have any problems with alcohol for the bulk of the, the middle part. Yeah. And then he's tempted by a glass of alcohol later, where she sets that glass in front of him, and she's like, are you going to drink it? I'm like, well, is there a reason why he shouldn't? Because we haven't been given a right. recovery narrative at all. Like, yeah, that's what, yeah, in the movie, that's where she's trying to have him help her find out, like, one who, like who killed Gert Rafto, which turns out is Katrine's father, and also just to help her solve the snowman case, and, like, pours him a, maybe about two shots worth of vodka, pens in front of him and says, like, here, maybe this will help you get your balls back. And he doesn't drink it. And, like, yeah, you're right. Like, why would we think he wouldn't drink it? It's it's booze, and this character really likes booze. Yeah, that's all he's been doing is drinking booze. Uh, yeah. Like, we don't see him eat anything else, so, yeah. Yeah. Other characters are very off. Arve Stope in the book is not an industrialist. He is a magazine publisher, and he uh, he runs a magazine called The Liberal. He's more of a pub magazine publisher slash like talk show pundit, uh, just giving a lot of liberal views, a whole lot on Norwegian television. So he's a well-known celebrity. And the way the book describes him, you know, J.K. Simmons is, he's a great actor and he does fine with the way the character is interpreted in this movie. But in the book, I, I kind of see him like being played more like a very horny Carrie Elways, if you will. Like Carrie Elways, <laughs> like currently, because in the book, he's like, he's older. He's like, gotta like, you know, he's has all his hair. He has all of his hair. It's very gray. But like, I was thinking a lot of, uh, of Carrie Elways in the, in the Stranger Things season three, when he played the mayor of that town. And that is a bit more on par. And Arvey Stope, he is just a horny motherfucker. He is down to fuck any time. So like the scene. Does he traffic women? No, no. The trafficking women thing. I don't know what the hell that's from. That is not in the okay. book at all. Mateus is a mortician, which is why he's able. Really? That's why he's able to hide the bodies that he kills because he has access to the morgue and can just drop bodies off and tag them on his own and make some false paperwork and say, oh yeah, this is a cadaver from the hospital and no one ever checks up on it. So that's why he's able to hide the yeah, bodies. Yeah, those morgue attendants. So how does Mateus pick out his victims All right. in the book? So, <laughs> in the book, when we flashback uh, to the beginning, which an interesting thing about the flashbacks in this movie, when we start, it's uh, November 4th, 1980, Carter has just lost to Reagan. When we start in the present day, with the present day for this book is 2004, George Bush has just won his re-election, and then we flash back to, to Val Kilmer's character, it's 92, and Bill Clinton has just won his election. So the book has an interesting recurring theme there. It doesn't really thematically play in, but it was just fascinating to me. Wait, does the book bring up American yeah. presidential yeah, elections? Yeah, it specifically says that the characters here on the radio... That this president just won. Weird. Yeah, that's a uh, odd. Whatever, whatever. 
But in the book, it's the opening is similar but a little different. In the book, uh, Mateus and his mom arrive at some guy's house. His mother, Sarah, says, Okay, son, stay here. We don't hear the son's name in the first part, like the first chapter of the book, because that's where it starts. Mom goes in. She and some guy, they bang. It's consensual. It's nice. They're having a good time. It is clear both of them are married. They're having an affair. But it's like, okay, we're just going to do our thing, like, Narka tell our spouses. It's cool. That happens. It's not, And then she gets back in the car. Her son is there. He's built a snowman. He's sitting in the back seat. And he says something. His mom's like, what'd you just say, son? He says, Mom, we're going to die. Then it ends. Then, like, most of the book happens. And then, much later, after we realize that Mateus is the killer, we then go back and we get his side of it, where he goes to his with his mom to this house, and he's, like, just kind of playing around. He's, like, a frustrated kid, because... He's kind of a nerdy, but he's a really sh- he's a really smart kid, but he doesn't have very good social skills, and his classmates make fun of him because he doesn't have nipples. What? Yeah, that, it's a weird detail. He does not have nipples. Just doesn't. Okay. And so he is playing around, looks through a window while he's making a snowman, and sees his mom having sex with another man who also does not have nipples. No. Oh, and he puts okay. together, oh, shit. That's my actual dad. He's a 13-year-old kid, really smart, and he always knew something was up, because he's like, I don't look like my dad. That's strange. I wonder what that's all about. And his mother said, like, no, no, your grandfather didn't have nipples. And the kid's like, no, I've seen pictures of granddad during the war. He had nipples. What the fuck is this? All those shirtless war pics that were lingering about. Of course. And then he realizes, this is why I'm made fun of at school. The kids call him Mateus No Nipples. And it's all because my mom's a fucking whore and she's screwing this guy. And so he something snaps in him. And when they get back in the car, they start to drive. And that's where we hear him say, Mom, we're going to die. She's like, what the hell are you talking about? And as they're driving by a lake, Mateus, of his own volition and motivation, takes a tire iron and beats his mom's fucking head in. Yeah, he kills his own mother. Yeah, his mom slumps over, the car goes into the river, and then suddenly in a moment of self-preservation, Mateus gets out of the car and swims ashore. People see him and are like, oh my god, kid, are you okay? He's like, yeah, 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 I'm good. And the police just think that the mother's head injuries are because of the crash. Nothing ever comes of it. Mateus grows up and studies immunology and finds out he has a long-term defective disease that one day will make his skin tighten up and his face, like, unable to emote. And he knows that this disease is on the way. While he's in college, he learns about mothers who were unfaithful and have children, like, that don't belong to their fathers. And something about that just really triggers Mateus, and so he begins killing. And the first woman he kills is on the first snow of 1992. Gert Rafto, Val Kilmer's character, is the one who's assigned to the case. And Gert Rafto is a little different than the movie version, because in the movie, he's an alcoholic who is suspended. In the book, he's also a recovering alcoholic, much like Harry, but he's off the sauce. However, he's a disgraced former star detective who was found stealing things from the scenes of crimes and selling them to pawn shops. So he was brought up on charges disgrace but is still an active member he's not suspended and he fucks up the investigation into Mateus 
because he wants to be the star cop who solves everything on his own. Turns out, no, Mateus gets to him, and we don't find out what happens. We don't, we don't, we don't find out what happens to Rafto for quite some time until later in the book, Katrine and Harry both go to Bergen to check things out because they realize there was a snowman kill way back in 1992, and they want to figure out what the hell was going on. They track down things, go to the original cabin that we see Harry in the movie is checking out where Rafto killed himself. Up until this point, Rafto is just missing. They don't know what actually happened to him. They go down into the cellar where no one has been since Rafto disappeared. They pry open a freezer door and find Rafto's body. Oh, shit. Yeah, his nose is removed, his mouth has been sewn shut, nails poked into it, and a carrot stuck in his nasal cavity. <laughs> so, um, your lead detective goes missing and you don't search his house? Apparently not. <laughs> okay. Apparently the place was searched. Uh, the mother and the daughter, who is later revealed to be Katrine, uh, just decide they want nothing to do with the cabin, so they just let it be. No one touches it for a very long time, until many years later, where... Harry and Katrine show up and uncover this. Katrine kind of goes in, into a bit of shock. We don't know that she's a Rafto's daughter yet in the book, but Harry is like, she's had a shock. She needs to chill the fuck out. Katrine overall is a much more fascinating character in the book. Uh, first of all, she doesn't die. She doesn't die. That's what I heard. Yeah, doesn't die. Isn't she like in like three other novels? Uh, I couldn't. I looked up synopsis for the uh, synopses for the future books. And I didn't see her name in it anywhere, but I think that is the case. But the other interesting thing about Katrine is that she just has way more agency in the book. Here's the thing. In the novel, the snowman killer isn't the one that sends those letters to Harry. Katrine is. Interesting. Here's what's going on. Why? Katrine has been trying to solve her, like, figure out what the hell happened with her father for many years. And slowly has, like, spent many years working in Bergen and then transferred to Oslo because she heard about Harry. And her letters to him are the kind of her way of recruiting him and trying to get him on this case. She, Interesting. She's a, yeah, that's fun. Yeah, she's a super fascinating, very clever character in the book. Other, like, crazy things, okay, that, that all happens. And then when she thinks Arve Stope is the snowman killer, she goes to a party. That's the whole Olympic Games thing is not in the book at all. The party that she goes to Arve Stope is a member of is like a celebration of the 25th anniversary of his magazine. Uh, she seduces, like she wears a really nice dress and like seduces Arve Stope, which is not fucking difficult. They go to <laughs> his hotel room. She gets up there and uh, <laughs> I love this. They get up there and she proceeds to beat the shit out of Arve Stope. All right. She handcuffs him. And at one point, like is tightening a noose around his neck and a lot of dialogue I think you would love. She says, do you like that? Is that tight enough? My ex-husband used to jerk off while I get a leather noose around his neck at the club. Yes, I do it. She, yeah. So it's revealed, and there's like other rumors throughout the book that she's into really crazy S&M. Like other characters are like, oh, this chick's like into that leather kinky shit. And Harry's like, dude, that fuck doesn't fucking matter. Shut up. I mean, the police brutality and assault charges that she has pending probably against this Arve Stop guy. Yeah. So she want the what she's wanting to do is make it look as if Arve Stop was the snowman killer and hang him to dry because she thinks that it, he was the killer. 
escapes, flees to Bergen. Eventually, uh, Harry catches up to her, finds her, and while she is in the hospital awaiting trial, more snowman killings happen. And Harry, for a little while, everyone thinks that Katrina is the killer in the book. So again, she's just a way more fascinating character in the novel versus the movie. Finally, Harry kind of figures out that it's Mateus uh, due to a moment of inspiration that came from the super hot fumigation guy. Oh, so the hot mold guy is actually a character? The hot mold guy is actually in the book a lot more. Fuck yeah. Uh, he arrives like on the first, like the first time we meet Harry, he's waking up. Here's a knock on the door. Fumigation guy is there. The book doesn't say if he's hot or not, but it does say like he has glasses that seem way too big for his face. So I think he's meant to come off as like kind of a, a goofy character. But, like, he just <laughs> keeps showing up. Like, he shows up, like, five times throughout the novel. Every time Harry goes back to his house, more pieces of, of his walls and ceilings have been taken out. Until finally he goes back one day and sees that, like, everything is put back to normal. Except for one one piece of the wall that's painted red. And he's like, that wasn't red before. What the heck? And he gets a note from the, the fumigation guy. And he says, hey, sorry, that was red. I cut myself and I bled. You can't get blood out of wood. Uh, I had to just paint over it to, to fix it. Otherwise, I just have to get new wood. And Harry is like, huh, you can't get blood out of wood. Interesting. This clues him in. He goes to the to the crime scene where Sylvia Otteson herself was killed. Her death is far different than the movie, but that's a whole other thing I won't get into. Checks out the wood, notices that there is blood on there that was covered up by chicken blood. That it turns out two chickens were beheaded before Sylvia was killed, and then one was killed afterwards. That final chicken was killed by the snowman killer to cover up blood from a hatchet wound that Sylvia gave him during a fight. Nice. Yeah. There actually is a whole chase scene with Sylvia before the missing persons report where she does put up a fight. So not only is uh, Katrina a much more interesting character, but so is Sylvia in the book. And this movie adaptation was just make, taking female characters and making them less interesting. I don't know if that was a deliberate, like, misogynistic thing, but... I mean, to thing, be but... fair, they kind of just made every character yeah, less everyone across the board was less interesting than the book. So. None of these people have any agency. Shit just happens around them this until yeah. things culminate to an end. But uh, Harry checks it out and does find human blood there that's B-negative, which is a very rare type of blood finds out Mateus himself also is being negative through some medical records. And that's how, like, that helps him deduce, oh, Mateus is the killer. End of the book is much different. And I think would have been much more badass instead of like kidnapping uh, Raquel and Oleg and taking them off. Mateus kind of does a calls or the, the, does a, the calls are coming from inside the house type of thing and is hiding out in Raquel's house waiting for Harry to, like, kind of catch on that, like, what's going on. He, uh... <laughs> Raquel gets the word, Mateus the Killer, lock all your doors, be careful. And uh, while this is happening, she notices, like, there's a dripping coming from the ceiling. Like, what the fuck is that all about? She goes up to her bedroom, and there's a giant snowman in her bedroom. Holy shit, this is crazy. Mateus then gags Rachel, gags Raquel, ties her up, puts her on the snowman, and puts that noose thing around her neck. Side note, the noose thing is also more interesting in the book. In the movie, we kind of get the feeling that this is some sort of, like, ripcord thing that, like, the that wire will tighten really fast, and that's how it cuts. In the book, it's described as this, uh, this device that French farmers came up with to quickly slice the rotting flesh of dead cows. 
it looks kind of like what's in the movie, but the wire rotates really fast and lights up white hot and is able to sear through flesh really quick and cauterizes whatever it goes through. Yeah, it's just way more badass. So there are there are a lot of scenes describing like this hooded killer with this tool that like is like this ring, this white ring of fire that is like wrote like spinning around. So it just sounds way cooler in the book. He puts that in the snow turned on around Rachel's neck. And as the snow is slowly starting to melt, uh, Raquel is is like getting closer and closer to having this thing slice through her neck. Again, just so many other bad thing, badass things happening. Oleg is locked in a freezer, uh, but he gets out because he's a smart kid. And also Oleg is like 10 years old in the book versus like he's aged up a little bit in the in the movie, whatever. Harry gets to the house. Uh, he gets a SWAT van to like pry bars off the window, gets in, and he does in the book also lose a finger, uh, freeing Raquel from the from the the wire trap. Uh, tracks down Mateus, who has climbed to the top of a giant ski lodge on top of a mountain overlooking Oslo. He is going to jump. Harry stops him at the last minute, uh, and like tells him like you know your attempt to do this John Doe like seven masterpiece killing failed. Rachel is fine. And Mateus goes to jail. Mateus goes to jail. Yeah. So okay. Mateus lives, goes to jail, and is caught. Oleg, Raquel, and Harry more or less get back together. It's a little wishy-washy. Uh, another weird thing. We know who Oleg's father is in the book. In the book, Raquel just explains, yeah, well, I used to work for the Norwegian embassy while I lived in Russia. And I dated a Moscow businessman. That's Oleg's father. I kept waiting for like some sort of reveal, like, no, Harry, you're the real father. No, Harry's not the real father. He was kind of a stepfather figure for many years in his life. And him and like Raquel keep hooking up over and over again in the book because she is with Mateus. But Mateus is like just a who uh, you mentioned this one time. Who is like that? That boyfriend that Buffy had. He was just a boring guy, but he was a good guy. Riley. Riley. Yes. Mateus is a Riley. That's how he's described. And like, that's how he is to Raquel. He's dependable. He's reliable. He shows up when he says he's going to show up, unlike Harry. But God damn it, Harry's just a really good lay. Which doesn't necessarily come across in the movie. No, no. Harry seems to be. Those jeans are something special. Pretty bad lay in the movie. So, yeah, just a lot of things. Also, Harry is portrayed as like a little too bitter. I think in the movie, like the book describes, like he is a bitter detective who is, he's just seen the worst that humanity has to offer, but he also like has like kind of a, a sense of humor about him. He's sarcastic. Uh, he also just loves Oslo. There's many portions of the book where he talks about like how much he loves the city of Oslo. He like will often like go out jogging and like look at it from mountaintops. It's just like, ah, oh, this city is just so fucking awesome. Well, that's one of the big problems, and I'm certainly not the first to critique the movie in this way, but we don't really get a sense of Harry Hull as a character mm -hmm. because the movie is such a clusterfuck of editing that we never know what he's doing, how he's feeling, or what information he actually knows. And so he's just our occasional vehicle through which shit is happening around him, but... Yeah, we know nothing about his interior space, yeah. really. And I'd say that, you know, in any any time that you do an adaptation from book to film, there's always a lot lost just because you can't... This, the book is 500 pages in paperback form. You can't cram all of that into a two-hour movie. That, that's why I said to myself, like, this should have been, like, an, an eight-episode, like, Netflix special or something like that. It's something like, you know, a, a 
a production company that has like a little prestige that can really put their back into it and do something great with it. Cause I know that this movie was like one of the first movies made under new like tax incentives that the Norwegian government was giving out mm-hmm. because they wanted more films to be made in Norway, which is great, you know? Uh, but that, that it did not go that route, uh, which is strange because it's not like that type of uh, narrative storytelling style wasn't a thing in 2017. We already had, you know, like we had True Detective. We have, you know, those limited. We have American Horror Story, like anthology style stories that are limited to one season that tell a concise, you know, beginning to end, you know, tale and are good to go and are done very well with a lot of love and care that this movie did not get. But we also have movies like Seven and Silence of the Lambs. So you can do a serial killer movie mm-hmm. in the format of a film. This one just failed at it horribly. Yes. And so they could have done it this as a movie. They just didn't do it. They as would a have movie. yeah, they would have needed to trim a lot of characters. Almost every single character from the book is in the movie to some extent, if only very abbreviated or what have you. They really should just cut many characters from it <laughs> to trim down on time, cut it down to like only one or two killings, cut out like the the ovary stope thing adds absolutely nothing to it. So there's there's no point to it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You just need to have kind of punch up those letters a little bit more. I like that Katrine is the one sending them. But mm-hmm. I mean, if we just start it with this hairy hole that's getting a letter, like his yearly letter. <laughs> We can montage a little bit of past cases once Katrine gets there where it's like, hey, look, there's been a pretty consistent yearly first snowfall and these are the bodies that we have. But yeah, there are ways. I, I'm curious what the script was. I think you and I both commiserated earlier off audio that we could not find yeah. the original script to this anywhere. That's fascinating to me that like the biggest thing about this movie is that they didn't shoot all of the script, but the script is nowhere to be found online. So I'm not sure how much I believe the 15 to 10 percent, but obviously something's missing. And yet obviously other things were shot that weren't used in the way that anyway. So, yeah, that's all going on. Fun aside fact while you were talking about the plot. I did the math for the B negative blood because I'm like, that's a suspicious way of Mm -hmm. deducing a killer because even minor blood types, there's still a lot of people population wise and this is why you can't use you know blood type as an exclusive means of getting a warrant so in norway 1.2 percent of the population is b negative blood Mm. that is the second rarest form of blood type in norway but then there are also 5.368 million people population wise in norway so even with a b negative blood you're still looking at a sample size of possibly 6,441 suspects it's not the only thing so, that uh, clues him in on it. I'm just saying, yeah. it's like, B-negative blood, like, must be this dude. The, like, the, or 6,000 other people. Yeah, the big thing, uh, like, what that literally leads to, because like, yeah, he never, like, takes a warrant out against Mateus or anything. What happens is he sees that, he's like, oh, that's a little weird, and then a thought occurs to him, he's like, well, let me check on something. He goes to the local morgue, talks to the other guy who works there, that's not Mateus, he's like, okay, dude, let me ask you something really quick. If I worked here, and I brought in a body, What's to stop me from making false paperwork on it? He's like, uh, I guess really nothing. He's like, okay, uh, let me look through these really quick. 
opens up a few of the like the trays that have the bodies in them. I think in some of like they're in tanks that are like submerged in alcohol to preserve them. And in one of them is one of the is one of the snowman murders. Yeah, well, that's a little bit more incriminating. Yeah. <laughs> Although, <laughs> so does the Mateus in the book not leave dismembered body parts around? Uh, he does. Uh, Silver Sylvia Otterson, her her body is like her head is found like way out in the field the night of her murder when the police are brought in. Uh, what happens to Sylvia is that like she hears like someone approaching cuts the snowman killer and then starts running. She runs a little bit through a field and then jumps in a stream because she doesn't want to leave footprints and is running through that. And that's when her foot gets caught in a bear trap, which is similar to something that we see briefly happen to Chloe Sevigny's character in the, the trailer. But in the, the novel, like they've just set up these traps because they've had issues with wildlife on their farm. Mm -hmm. That's when she's stuck. The snowman killer gets to her, dismembers her, and there's no issue of blood because she's in a stream, so everything just washes away, and her body is put on top of a snowman that Harry finds late at night, and he's, like, obviously uh, a little shook by that. But, yeah, the snowman killer, because he has that, like, awesome cauterizing hot wire, uh, mm -hmm. is able to, like, slice and dice his bodies really quickly. There is something kind of awesome about the aesthetic of body parts being integrated into snowmen. Yeah. They probably should have leaned heavier into that <laughs> because we've got the one time where, yeah, Sylvia's head gets put on a snowman and we get sort of two times where there's a body left behind and then a snowman head gets put on a body. And so there's a certain kind of fun playfulness that's happening here with the snowman killer, especially when we incorporate the notes and this sort of sing-song child-like thing that's happening in the skit-stick figures. Yeah, I, as I mentioned earlier, I just wanted to see this kind of interplay of this whimsical snowman killer a little bit more, and we just didn't get that kind of commitment. I guess that kind of gets a little bit into the Nordic noir stuff that I was... Yes. There's two things that I had for us was the, the weirdness of the sculptures and the artistry that's happening and then this kind of like snowy Nordic noir landscape. So going back to pin num number one, that art gallery that Raquel works in, um, it cuts to her and she has these big paintings or drawings almost that looks like that she's trying to sell to some guy. And the dialogue's really weird here, but she first starts with, you're familiar with Emmanuel Vigeland, is the first thing that she says when we cut to her mid-dialogue. And Emmanuel Vigeland, a lot of Norwegians and Scandinavians in general would be somewhat familiar with him. Because he did paint a lot of churches around Scandinavia. Not only paint, there's a multi-dimension to his artistry. He did a lot of the stained glass windows. He did a lot of frescoes. He did... Not really as much sculpture work as his brother, but he just kind of had a bunch of different mediums that he worked in. And he's most known for Tumba Emmanuel, um, which is a mausoleum in Oslo. His ashes are in it. And the really fun, there's two fun features to this mausoleum. One is the acoustics in it are so bizarre and echoing that a lot of folk artists have actually recorded albums oh. inside his mausoleum. And then there's also this thing that happens with how tall the door is when you're exiting and where his ashes are placed. The mausoleum kind of forces visitors to sort of bow to his ashes as 
they <laughs> enter or exit. And, and so he had a fun little sense of humor there in the structural design. His brother um, is Gustav Wiegland, who's a much better known artist. Both of these boys were born with the last name Thorson, but they would take Wiegland as their last name after a place that they all lived in briefly. But he is most well known, Gustav is, for the Wiegland installation, which is in Frogner Park in Oslo. And he was a sculptor, and those are the sculptures that we get at the beginning of the movie, oh. where there's this sort of long dwelling on these bizarre humanoid sculptures of men and women and mostly little children just climbing over each other and stacked on top of each other. There's a lot of imagery in his work with family dynamics and a lot of fatherhood type of representations. And so... There's a lot of these kind of big sculptor men holding little babies or kind of interacting with a maternal looking figure. And so there's a lot of work on his work about the depictions of fatherhood and family okay. in the sculptures that are in this garden. And so we kind of get that theme that's starting to get sprinkled in here about fatherhood and family dynamics. So a lot of thought was put into this movie in the places that it unfortunately ended up mattering the least. Yeah, so that's why there's sort of glimpses of things here where I think they were maybe going to start to try doing something. And so I really want to know what was happening or what would have happened with this movie in a complete form. Another reason why I don't get why they didn't just, you know, do more reshoots if they didn't have it yet. But whatever. So they did have both of these brothers did have a father who was an alcoholic and did, I think, eventually leave the family. But then Gustav was sort of a, a controversial character as well, because he also would have a series of affairs with young women. He would have a lot of illegitimate children. And so there's a strange duality with his work in that his personal life was kind of this clusterfuck horror show of just sleeping with all of these young women, impregnating them, and then never talking to them again, or their offspring, or his own offspring. And then these really loving depictions of fatherhood in his sculptures. Oh so there's, there's some interesting kind of art criticism out there on on that as well he also actually has some criticism for possibly embracing kind of nazi fascist aesthetics in a lot of his works and he hey. was possibly sympathetic or open to the fascist party and so there's that kind of uncomfortable narrative especially since this installation is one of the main features in frogner park in oslo um but that also gets into the nordic noir stuff so we'll we'll talk about that in just a second but the dialogue that we get here in this art scene with uh, Charlotte Kingsborough is, you're familiar with Emmanuel Wiegland. His brother's work was most likely influenced by their father who turned to drink and had an illegitimate child with a much younger woman. And that's, of course, when we kind of cut to, to Harry um, mm. in that inaugural comparison that we were talking about earlier. But this was also just a really weird phrasing of this line. You're familiar with Emmanuel Wiegland. His brother's work was most likely influenced. Da, da, da. <laughs> You're familiar, you know this guy? Fuck this guy. Let me talk. Let's talk about his brother. Let's, let's talk about his brother. Yeah. And the weird thing, too, is that Gustav is actually probably more known than Emmanuel Wiegland. So I'm not sure why she wasn't like, well, you're familiar with Emmanuel Wiegland. His brother's work, this guy right here. So, yeah, it was it was a very strange kind of thing that seemed something was kind of disconnected there maybe it was because we cut in mid-conversation i would say there's probably like the 10 percent of that scene that was missing was them explaining like yeah we're totally familiar with this guy oh you're familiar with this guy well let me tell you about his brother 
Yeah, so it just came off very strange, but they did both disown their father's name and take the name of the area they lived in after their father died. Um, so what I want to get into, too, is just Nordic noir and then also this thing called the Nordic paradox. Sure. Nordic noir as a genre is something that kind of started in the 1990s. And this is a term that is used outside of Scandinavia, right? Nobody in mm -hmm. the Nordic regions calls it Nordic noir in the way that we don't necessarily refer to film noir as American film noir. Yeah, well, it seems appropriate since the people who are making film noir never called them film noir. That term came up many years later because of the French. Well, that's true, too. But also, now this is a contemporary term that is used as this work is still kind of happening. Mm -hmm. But within Scandinavia, right, it's called crime fiction. Right. But yeah, this Nordic noir kind of has a certain aesthetic of its own, a certain kind of feel and mood of its own. And and it started to kind of evolve in the 1990s with people mostly like Henning Mankel and Stieg Larsson and things like that are probably the ones that are most well known outside of Scandinavia. So Mankel did the Kurt Wallander series and Stieg Larsson did the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And what is distinctive about this is that Nordic noirs are often very gritty and cold and stark and don't use a lot of metaphors in their writing. Mm -hmm. So there's this sort of rejection of the metaphorical use of language. And its sole purpose was kind of realizing, hey, we can use crime fiction to really look at, analyze and critique contemporary Scandinavian society. So that's really the big point of a lot of Nordic noirs is having that undercurrent of social criticism. And that is because of the Nordic paradox. So the Nordic paradox is a sociology and psychology type of term that kind of goes around in, in academia a lot. Mm -hmm. And I did, I think, write down the paper that this comes from. It was coined by Enrique Garcia and Juan Merlo in a paper they put out in Social Science and Medicine. And what this reflected was the findings statistically that even though Scandinavian countries, and I guess we'll distinguish Scandinavia from Nordic countries. So Scandinavia is just Denmark, Sweden, and Norway. And then when we get Nordic stuff, we get Finland included mm. and things. But Scandinavian countries have some of the highest numbers of gender equality on paper in terms of wages and paternity mm -hmm. versus maternity leave and all these sort of things. Mm -hmm. They also consistently have the top stats of lifetime prevalence of intimate partner violence, domestic abuse, and rape. Oh. And so this hmm. is called the Nordic paradox, because okay, these yeah. countries that or have a high level of gender equality in their discourse actually also have some of the highest stats of female violence. Yeah. So paradox, right? Well, yeah. What the fuck is up with this? Mm -hmm. And this is something that we don't have an answer to, but people who research the Nordic paradox are trying to figure out like, what the fuck, right? Just to give people kind of ideas of those stats. So for IPV or intimate partner violence, the EU has about 20 to 22% often reported. Sweden and Norway come in at 28%. Finland comes in at 30 and Denmark comes in at 32%. Wow. So there's almost a 10% increase in Denmark from the rest of the EU, which oh, is damn. kind of interesting. And then rape in Norway statistically projects that one out of 10 women um, in the Norwegian population have been raped. Good and Lord. so 
yeah, these are some high stats. So it's like, what, what the fuck do we do with this? What do we do about it? And that comes up a lot in Nordic noir fiction. This is why in a lot of things like Girl, the Dragon Tattoo or the Kurt Wallander series or in The Snowman, right? We have this prevalence of the patriarchy and misogyny and domestic violence and sexual assault. Usually that's used in a way to look at the criticism of we have both within our own society and kind of globally, this depiction of this socialist utopia, right? And it's not. It's like the, some of those stats are interesting because there's a statistic that comes up in the book where that Mateus like repeats to himself a whole lot, where he says 20% of children in Norway might not know their actual father or something like that. But he just says like, it's very common in this country that our children do not know who their real father is or that their father is not who they think it is. And Mm -hmm. I don't know how accurate that is to real life, but it is like one of the things that kind of sets him on his way. Interesting. So yeah, I don't know how accurate that stat is or not because I haven't looked up that one, but I could see that being a byproduct of potentially, yeah, sexual assault or coercion. There might be a lot of infidelity, especially if people feel trapped in their abusive marriage that they can't get out of and are sort of seeking solace elsewhere. So it does seem like there'd yeah, be a lot of opening for out-of-wedlock children, as it were. But... Yeah, and we get this a little bit in this film, right, where it opens up with this memory from this child's perspective of a lot of what seems like egregious domestic violence. And it resonates with other Nordic noir fiction where I'm like, okay, yeah, once again, we've got a Nordic noir. Like, these women are just going to really get beaten down throughout this narrative. And we get that a little bit with Britta or Bita. I can't remember whose name was. Mummy number one, right? Where her husband comes in and seems a little abrasive. Um, And then the sex trafficking, right? That kind of violence coming in. So we get these flirtations with women's position within this undercurrent of Norwegian society, but we don't do anything with it, right? It doesn't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. And we don't really fully have the snowman or even the audience really getting the breakdown of this MO doesn't make a whole lot of sense because it's, yeah, it's the father that is cheating in the original equation, right? Like his father apparently has a family somewhere that he's just fucking his mom and he doesn't have another guy that he knows to be his father. So yeah, like it's it's kind of the father here that's doing some stuff. She didn't cheat on his father. So it's weird that then his MO becomes, well, women who are unfaithful have to go. Women who abandon their children or don't let them know who their father is. He apparently knew who his father was. So, like, there's this whole kind of thing where, like, men are doing some stuff and then he's going to turn around and kind of take it out on, I would, yeah. on women. I would say the motivation of the book makes a lot more sense because there he's just, like, his trouble as a child is that he's tormented because of a physical disformity that he has. And when he sees his mother having sex with this guy who also has no nipples, he says to himself, this is the cause of all my, the, the problems I have in life. That's the incorrect conclusion, but that's what he says to himself. This is why my life is bad, because my mom is a whore. And that becomes like his motivation for the killings later on when he uh, he himself is able to uncover DNA tests and he know he can find, you know, women who have cheated on their husbands and born like bastard, like illegitimate children. Um, the reason that or. <laughs> This is a little extra thing for the book. The reason Arve Stope is even involved with the book is that because both Britta Becker 
and Sylvia Audison. Sylvia in the book has twins. Both of them have children uh, because they had an affair with Aubrey Stope. Oh, so he's just like a random baby daddy somewhere. Exactly. Yeah, he's a random baby daddy, uh, but he has like kind of a he has kind of a heart of gold because he puts a lot of money into like making sure the kids have good medical care because he knows he has a genetic defect himself that might harm the kids later on. So he wants to make sure they're taken care of. And because of that paper trail, that's how Katrine traces thing back to him. And that's why she beats the shit out of him in that awesome scene that's not in the movie. But why is she suspicious of him to begin with? Just because he fathered the children? So pretty much she's expecting. Okay, so why in the movie is she suspicious of Arve Stop? Because <laughs> there is no reason given why this woman is so singularly focused on uh, this guy. <laughs> because movie, uh, that is there. There are many moments in this movie where you just say like, "This is happening," because movie. Because movie. Because movie. Because editing. Oh, God. <sighs> so that's the snowman. That's the snowman. That is the snowman. That's the troubled production of the snowman. That's the book of the snowman. That is Nordic Noir, the Nordic Paradox. Oh, wait, we actually, we forgot to do our top five, though. Uh, my number five. My number five is Arve Stope's Big Dick Energy. <laughs> Mine, too, is J.K. Simmons. Because <laughs> I was like, you know what? I, I just, I get really happy whenever J.K. Simmons appears on screen. So I'm just glad that he was in this movie. We'll, we'll do these quickly. Yes. Uh, my number four, I'll give, give it up to Charlotte Gainsbourg. I actually, despite how weird this movie was, I did enjoy her in it. And it was nice to see Charlotte Gainsbourg in a, in a role that didn't terrify me. Because I think I've really only seen her primarily through Lars von Trier's films, and she is terrifying in all of those. See, I love her in all of those. I have also seen her get sexually abused by her actual biological father, Serge Gangsborough, in the incestuous rom-com Charlotte Forever. That's a fun little French film back from when she was like somewhere in the vicinity of 12 to 15. Neither here nor there, but people should look it up. What? My number four. <laughs> you want to talk about those Danish incestuous films? No, actually, this one was a French film. So, um, yeah, there's a movie about. Um, Does it make it better? I, I there's nothing not great about Charlotte Forever. So, it is a movie with Serge Gangsbert, a prominent folk singer, you know, extraordinaire from France, who had Charlotte with the model English model Jane Birkin. And then he, at some point there was a movie in which a mother dies and the father starts up an incestuous relationship with his daughter. And the fun fact is that the father-daughter pairing in that movie are real-life father-daughter pairing Serge Gangsborough and Charlotte Gangsborough. And the movie is called Charlotte Forever. And uh, they actually also sing together on the soundtrack for the movie, which is called Lemon Incest. So, fun times. For God's sakes, just get to your number four. I'm just saying, if you contextualize her history, it makes a lot more sense as to why she does Lars von Trier films. My number four is a is the cinematographer. So <laughs> I don't necessarily I, I agree with many uh, cinematography critics in that nothing was done to this in post production. Uh, really? Yeah, the, this is like uh, I think uh, Dan Olson of the Folding Ideas YouTube channel pointed out that. 
the all of the footage in this looks very suspiciously familiar to completely raw, ungraded Ari Alexa footage. Yeah, so somehow this movie missed its post-production, so apparently they were rushed in post as well. well. But they, uh, as far as the actual sort of frame work and the shots that they got in the raw footage, a lot of them are very satisfying, and it makes some of this film watchable for the atmosphere alone um, in terms of yeah, just mm -hmm. some of the shots that they get. So I do think the cinematographer was delivering with the raw footage and then shit fell through yeah, the post. Fair enough. No, I, I thought no matter what, you can say this movie is very beautifully shot and does take advantage of, of the native locations that uh, that hasn't really been a thing for quite some time. This is one of the first films I've ever seen use Norway as well as it does. So yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. uh, my number three, I'll give it up to uh, to the most bizarre... Uh, concert singer of all time because yes. uh, we just cut to him and it's just he uh what was i thinking of it, it sounds like he's about to start singing ballroom blitz you know like it's it's something we need to look up who that actually is because i wonder if it is someone in in norway yeah it probably says on the concert ticket oh, i just didn't go back and pause my it. final fun fact about the book in the novel do you know who they're going to go see no they go to a Slipknot concert in the novel. What? Oh my god. <laughs> and it's like, afterwards, Har Harry is hanging out with 10-year-old Oleg, just like, thinking to himself, how the hell did the kid get into this music? To be fair, I remember my brother was really into Slipknot when he was around the 8- to 10-year-old range. Yeah. So that might be the prime audience <laughs> for Slipknot. Yeah. And the the novel, it's important to note, takes is like dated and takes place in two thousand and four. Okay, so they're so going yeah, to see right Slipknot in two thousand and four, not Slipknot in twenty seventeen. Well, no, I mean, <laughs> who who goes to see Slipknot? Are they still even performing in two thousand seventeen? No, it doesn't matter. I don't want to know. <laughs> I, I do forget that um, there is a bonus shout out to the cart guy because I promised and I would mention the cart guy the and I forgot. Cart guy. So. There is a scene in which they are going to this warehouse that has been delegated as the research station for what's happening. And there is a guy that's just on this like big cart in the background that's just pushing himself around in a really exuberant oh, fashion. Oh, yeah. And I don't think he knows he's on film. And he looks like he's having a grand old time. He's the only one that's having fun in this movie. So I promised that I would give a shout out to the cart guy. Fair but enough. my number three is the Norwegian landscape. It's yep. just bringing it. All right. It's just bringing it. Because as we mentioned. It is Who's beautiful. your number two? Uh, my number two, Rebecca Ferguson. Because I did like her, and I like Rebecca Ferguson in most movies. She did a good job here. She deserved better because this character, her character, really got shortchanged. Fair enough. Mine um, was Thelma Schoonmaker, the editor, right number two on this. The editing is a nightmare clusterfuck, but <laughs> I know her work, and I know that she did the best she could with this, and I feel really bad for her that. She came in to try to salvage something, and now her name is also included on the list of people who worked on this movie. Oh, man, so that's rough. I, Thelma, I know you tried. What's your number one? Uh, my number one, I'll give it up to my... Oh, I mean, I guess, did I miss one? Because I have two left, oh, so just do... I somehow can't add. Did I? Oh, I'd say th I think we're on number two. No, wait, my number two? 
Yeah, you missed one. Just what's your number two? All right, I'm gonna have a number. Uh, I'm gonna have a tie, I guess, with number one. Okay, so well then, my number, number one, one is Michael Fassbender, because uh, I do like what he was doing in the movie. Uh, unfortunately, he comes off looking ridiculous because of the way that this thing is cut together. I think it is a really good example of like how film acting is a, it can be a risky thing because you can try really hard and you are at the mercy of post-production. And I think, you know, a decent enough Michael, like Michael Fassbender is always a serviceable actor, does a good job. I think good work of his was lost because of how well, of what a clusterfuck this film was. I've heard a story that apparently he started filming this thing the day after he wrapped filming the Assassin's Creed movie. Oh. Like, well, there's wrapped one movie, flew to Oslo, and began work on this thing. So, props to that work ethic. So he brought it. So, my number one, the hot mold guy. Oh, the hot he mold just guy. He lights up the screen. Oh, the hot mold guy. Hot mold Doesn't guy. give a fuck when people shoot at him. He <laughs> has a small little puppy that he just carries around. And... For some reason, he's just in two scenes where he's in that one scene that we mentioned. And then the other one mm. is when the snowman killer is going to break into Harry Hole, which really is just Holda. Um, we, we forgot to mention that. But yeah, so he breaks into Harry's apartment as the fake mold guy and he's bopping along to the popcorn song by Hot Butter. <laughs> Which is also the song that he had been blasting in Chloe Sevigny's house when he went to go kill her. So apparently the theme song of this uh, killer is the popcorn song. And he goes running out of the apartment and he goes right past the real hot mold guy that is standing outside of a bar clutching his puppy. Once again, for no reason other than to really establish for the audience, like, no, that wasn't Hot Mold Guy, because Hot Mold Guy's right here, just hanging out on a stoop, clutching a puppy, puppy. looking hot. So, yeah, Hot Mold Guy. And it's a a first place tie with the snowman builder. Whoever built those motherfucking (laughs) snowmans, they're... Oh, uh, they're great. They're so cute. They have like they're they're just the two balls, and then they have these little like weird, crooked, smiley faces, and they look both sad and needful at the same time. And then there's that one absolutely grand snowman where it's a three-tiered snowman and has the sort of carrot nose and stuff. So you're like, oh, that's just just a fake out snowman. That's not the real one. But then the camera like spins and pans around to the back of it, and one of our little like two persons frowny snowmen <laughs> are on the back of it on its bottom two balls and you're like oh no the snowman killer actually was here so yeah the snowmen they they bring a levity to the atmosphere um i'm gonna give an honorable mention to whichever writer it was that didn't realize they could have translated harry's norwegian name to harry hill because his actual name in the book, and I looked this up on also Wikipedia, a few other sources, would be, would be pronounced Harry Hule, which in Hule. yeah Hule, and in some versions of Norwegian that can mean like rolling hill or hill mount whatever. So they could have just called this character Harry Hill, but no, 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 no. We weren't gonna go see this movie about Harry Hill. No, we went to see a movie about. Harry Hole. Yeah, that's why I'm going to add an honorable mention to whichever writer decided that they were just going to name him Harry Hole. (laughs) 
Because it's one of the few things that keep us engaged in this film. Because every few moments, it's just oh. a little shock. Like, yep, we just called him Harry Hole. We really are calling I mean, it's him. juvenile, but it's also funny. I can remember, I swear, I remember when we saw this movie in the theaters, as soon as the credits rolled, my first comment was, So, did his name have to be Harry Hole? It did, yes. And I think your, your, your answer was just, of course it did, Ben. What's wrong with you? Of course it did. All right, now, now I think we have we've gone through the dark long enough. We've been in the dark of, of Norway in the bleakness of the, to come forth to see uh, again the sun. For I wish to see London. What I wish to see, the sunlight. I was gonna say, you gonna say for it out or sunlight? Right. Say for it out. Ah, sunlight indeed. I'm too much. I never wanna know a day that's over 40 degrees. I'd rather have a 30, 20, 10, 5, and let it freeze! He's Mr. Too much. <laughs> I'm escaping to the one place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism. Space!